0: This is an interview with Dr. Jack Bedell for the CSUF Humanities and Social Sciences Founding Faculty Oral History Project. The interview is being conducted by Abby Waldrip on June 22nd, 2018 here on the Cal State Fullerton campus. Thank you so much for coming today and granting me this interview. My pleasure. So I start with easy questions of when and where were you born?
1: <clears throat> okay, I was born in Flushing, New York. On December 21st 1942.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and family life?
1: Sure it was somewhat different in that my brothers were 17 and 14 years older than me so I was a bit of a surprise I would imagine I know I would throw myself on the freeway if I had a 16 year old at that but anyway uh, my parents were in their 40s so uh, The uh, childhood was very Long Island. It was very, my father was a machinist. He dropped out of high school when he was 17 to go to the war. He was gassed in France and they told him it would kill him eventually and it did, lung cancer. Uh, My mom was one of five children originally. She lost a baby brother, but she was uh, the only girl in her family and she had a fifth grade education because she had to go to work to help support her brothers. So what's interesting about that piece for me, Abby, is that she went and earned money and the, she got oatmeal for dinner and her brothers got meat because they were boys. And that helped inform me a great deal, both as a husband and a father, but particularly in the classroom with gender. Mm, I so uh, I was not allowed to play sports because I might get hurt. Uh, I was constantly in the presence of my brothers, so I I think I was the family birth control for them, and that was a family joke. They always go with Jackie. Jackie was my name then. Um, I was a decent student in high school. My parents wouldn't have it any other way. The brother in front of me was a very handsome playboy, so they were determined that they were not going to have another playboy. (laughs) So I became very tunnel driven. My oldest brother went to the University of Virginia and became very enamored with dramatics and flunked out. So I am the first person in my family to graduate from college. Not the first to go, but the first to graduate.
0: Were you encouraged to get an education? There was no
1: doubt about it. Uh, I had to get a Regents Diploma, which is a New York Diploma because my mother would have been scandalized. And she actually said it if I didn't get a Regents Diploma. It had no meaning because I was going to college in Pennsylvania. So uh, yes, there was no doubt about it. It was um, intense. It was, I mean, she was very visible in school, which looking back on it, I determined I was not going to be that visible with my own kids because I did not like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, I would say overall my childhood it was different because my brothers, my oldest brother, went away to college when I was two and came home then he came home <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know they were in and out they had their own places and my parents were much older right. my phone fa- i'm sorry uh,
0: i was going to ask what were your brother's names
1: chester and robert
0: and your parents
1: chester and Olga. okay
0: right and where were they from originally
1: my, all jamaica queens but that whole group was my grand my mother's grandmother was from england i don't know about my dad's father's parents but he was they all lived in that jamaica Long Island area,
0: Mm. Queens. And did your father share stories of the war with you?
1: I knew, yes, I knew he was gassed. Uh, I know his parents, his his mother had died when he was seven. Uh, His dad did not know he had enlisted. And the next thing you know, he's basically gone. Like, I'm going tomorrow kind of thing.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: then he got gassed in France. But, uh, yeah, it was minimal. He he was not like... My dad wasn't high disclosure at any time, on anything. Uh, But so he... uh, was. uh, As I said, we did not hear that much about that. We just knew he was gassed and it would kill him. Mm. And when I went to London, the War Museum in London has the mock-up of where he was gassed. I turned the corner and there it was. That was...
0: Oh, boy. Yeah.
1: That was a telling experience. Yeah. Am I doing okay? Are you getting the you You're want? doing fantastic. Okay.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, so what sorts of values did you acquire from your parents? What sort of things did they teach you, would you say?
1: Well, my mother and father were very interesting. I don't know how they got together, because she had a fifth grade education, and she hated Republicans. But she was much more conservative than my father. And she did not want diversity around her, although when she died <laughs> examining her papers, she gave a lot of money. I don't know whether it was guilt. She gave a lot of money to diverse the organ- diverse sponsoring organizations. Hmm. Uh, they had sort of, my father was a true liberal. He would be upset by what liberalness means in 2018. And, in the minds of some, but he was a traditional liberal. So he worked with people. He was a machinist in the Long Island Railroad. He read deep philosophy all the time he was reading philosophy. Mm. And uh, I think that's in Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, long before Schuller. And uh, so that's why I would would see that. So there was respect. Uh, I never heard a curse word uttered by my father. And the most, my mother would say, would be damn. So there, there was that respect. There was not, that language was not, and we would never use it. Uh, both my brothers and my parents smoked totally. Grand total for the four of them would be eight, eight cigarette packs a day. So I grew up around that. And my father died of lung cancer. My one brother died of pneumonia. My one other brother died of uh, bron- uh, bronchial and lung cancer. And my mother died in therapeutic misadventure. She would have been home from the hospital today in 15 minutes. She got a blood clot to her lung, having a minor surgery repair. When your, your mother's dying, get to New York. I was in graduate school. So uh, at 61 years of age, she died. He was 64. My one brother was 54 and my other brother was 48. So I've had cancer four times. Oh I've, I had colon cancer. Kid, I lost my right kidney. I had prostate cancer, and I had skin cancer. Now, I don't know whether, Abby, that's genetics or that's the damn, envirom- damn environment I grew up in.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh, you're a survivor.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm a very aggressive patient. So uh, that's that's the, the so I would go. I went away to college for my freshman year. There was no doubt I was going to college, and I was going away. My parents had the motto: "You're going away and like it, or you're going away and not like it. You're going away." And it was the same motto we used on my own children. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your
0: absolutely. Before we talk more about college, I have a couple more background questions I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned their political leanings. Right. Was there? political discussions
1: in the home? Uh, well, I, one of the one, interesting ones, yes, they were both were registered Democrats. They belonged to Democratic parties on Long Island. I know if my friends who read this are going to be surprised because I'm on the Central Committee of the Republican Party of Orange County right now. Right? <laughs> uh, I'm more of a Libertarian, but uh, yes, and my father, he gave me 1960. I was this as close to John Kennedy as you were. I came home from college for a weekend in, in the fall of 60. And I went to a rally my, with my parents, and Kennedy was right there, looked like a movie star. Wow. Uh, right there. And um, Adelaide Stevenson I met, Robert Wagner I met, all these Democratic people I met. Uh, there were political discussions, and my father was, really got me tuned to the idea without calling it as the double bind. He talked about how the Democratic Party, if they didn't vote and didn't, didn't nominate Kennedy, they'd be hurt because the Catholics wouldn't support the Democrats. And he also said if they do nominate a Catholic, he's going to lose the Southern Baptist vote. So he, uh, he really it was, you know, it's a sagacious uh, double bind. And uh, so that's, you yeah, that was the kind of stuff we wanted. Yeah. After my father died, she operated in a much more, mother operated in a much more conservative manner. She sold the family home after Sue and I got married, and she moved into a very elegant neighborhood in the North Shore of Long Island, which was very restricted, Mm -hmm. and uh, suited her to a T. She didn't have to deal with people. They brought her car to the front uh, room. She never would have done that, I don't think, with my father.
0: Mm. Okay. Was there um, a faith in the home?
1: Yes, but that's a great question. Uh, my mother was raised Anglican because her grandmother was. My great grandmother was the nurse, the, the psychiatric nurse to one of the Rothschild family members who had a mental illness. So she came over to this country and had my grandmother and my mother. So they were all Episcopalian. And then, so we went to the Episcopalian church. On Long Island, where we lived, and my father was baptized and raised as Methodist. So one day, the Episcopal bishop of Long Island was is coming to the church, and we had lessons on how to kiss his ring. We never went back to that church again. My mother's line was, "If I wanted to be a Catholic, I'd be a real one."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we became Methodist, which was, an, and I was, I was baptized Episcopalian, confirmed a Methodist.
0: What sort of role did the faith play in the home as
1: you as you grew up? Absolutely minimal. It really was. uh, It was a source of good friends for me. So I knew, and and good friends. They were not troublemaker friends. That I I knew that my that Methodist church was a source of solace for my parents because it provided a stable legal you know i mean there, there, there was nothing never nobody ever had the police come into the house in that group nobody. so it was the, it provided a stable friendship and the control but i mean we we, we didn't have bible we didn't invest in grace before dinner no, i think that
0: um so what sorts of relationships did you have with uh with your brothers if any since
1: they were so much older Yes. Uh, Well, as I said, I was with them on all their dates, to the extent that I know. I mean, when we were older, we would joke, Yes, you were always there, weren't you? Uh, uh, It was protective. Uh, I was going to be unlike the second one, so that that did some interesting thing. And that's a great question, because I've thought about a lot of that. I was very close to my brother's. The one died of alcoholism when he was 48, surprised with pneumonia. The one who survived ultimately died about eight years later, maybe longer, with bronchial and lung cancer. But the older I got, Abby, and the more accomplishments I had, whether they were scholarships or dean's list or that kind of thing, uh, he grew distant, and he never had children, he never married, and uh, he adored my children, but not in an equal way. And uh, so that, and it was just, I would land in the Kennedy airport, he would pick me up and he'd say, when are you going back? Before we would get, you know, at the turnstile. So that was sad, so I sort of pushed back, and he had the final revenge. When he died, he left everything, not everything, he left a huge chunk of his cash to my two children, which he'll pay for their college, and basically, not really, but shortchanged me, which, which, and so
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was just awkward. It was awkward that last part. He was my oldest brother. gave him a lot of grief because he, my older brother was an active alcoholic, and that has also helped inform me on the sickness role. So that's one of the things that my sociology has helped, because I could take how my mother was treated and how my brother and my my surviving brother. And he was hassled by him, and I'm sure he was, you know, bailing my brother. Out. I don't mean legally, but doing things for him. And I think there may have been I'm his way out here. What could I do? And I would go back, but it was not the same. Mm. So that's an interesting. Mm. I know my older brother adored my two children. I mean, he, and he adored them. And so he didn't have had children either.
0: Mm. So you're you're carrying on the name. Yes, yes. And
1: it's interesting, we have a boy and a girl, and each one of my children has a boy and a girl. Oh,
0: Oh my God. What luck.
1: Yes, right?
0: Yes. Um, So who were your role models growing up, would you say?
1: I had an aunt. My father's father's mother died when he was seven and my aunt was nine. And when my father, so the first, I came home from college of my freshman year, And the next morning I wake up Friday and my father's coughing up blood. So that's the beginning of the lung cancer episode. That went on for three years and I was away at college. He died in the middle of final exams of my first semester of my senior year in college. So he didn't get to see my marriage or my, you know. But his sister, uh, there were four children and he was raised, my father was raised by their oldest sister. His mother died of the bro, uh, burst appendix. And so the oldest sister raised the four of them. And the, sec- the last of the seven children, because my grandfather had been married before, were my aunt and my father. My aunt well, took over my expenses for college because my father had to quit because of the lung cancer. So my, my aunt was a role model that way. She, got, she went to Columbia Teachers College with no support from her, grand, her father. So when I would get into college or get doctoral scholarships, I mean, she was really – my aunt was my role model that way. Was her my name? Lou and my granddaughter – Luella. And my youngest granddaughter is Luella, middle name. Oh, very good. Yeah. So that was, that, that was a special – yeah, that was a special relationship. She came to Cleveland to help proofread my dissertation from New York. I flew in from California for my defense. She flew in, and we – yes, yeah, it was my aunt. And that, and my children adored her. And I mean, there's a special ring that's going to go to my granddaughter from her. There's, uh, they, she would call and want to speak to them. She'd put the kids on. I'm a, hello, I'm Chop Chicken. Liver. <laughs> so yeah, they, so that's really been a nice unifying thing. Okay.
0: Any anyone else serve as a role model?
1: There were people, faculty members at the university. Uh, Yes, and this is a reverse role model. When I was in fifth grade, <clears throat> I could not do long division, Abby. This long division was, you know, divide seven numbers into eight. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, I was going to throw myself on the New York freeway <laughs> uh, or run away to the Belmont track or something, which <laughs> was right next to campus. So in January, my fifth grade teacher announced this to the whole class, wonderful news, everybody passed the long division test. <laughs> except Bedell in front of a whole fifth grade, what is that, 10 to 11? Yeah. That is the negative role model. I vowed, the longer I got into the academic life and if I wanted to be a professor, I would never be that person. Yes. So that's a negative role model, but that's very important to me. Not humiliate, try to un- mm-hmm. say something in private as if you, you, you don't say it in public.
0: Yeah, early lessons learned. Yes, yeah. yes. So, What about aspirations? What did you want to be as you were growing up?
1: You know, I was your typical undeclared. (laughs) I I entered colleges and undeclared. I became a Spanish major because I tested out. In sixth grade, in seventh and eighth grade, sixth grade, seventh and eighth grade, I had a triple immersion program. I was part of an experiment. Everything was done in English, French, and Spanish. So I tested out in Spanish in college. When I got to do my Ph.D., I took it in French and tested it out in French. So uh, the aspiration piece was to get to college. I was very immature. I was home just about every other weekend, which I paid a price for. And uh, aspirations, but, you know, that's it. I never – I thought maybe if I were better in math, I might have been a doctor. But that I didn't like – yeah, I watched, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. There, that was interesting, kind of drifting that way. Yeah. yeah. So I was lucky, I didn't become a sociology major, Abby, until my first semester of my senior year. I had 20, 60, 32 units of sociology, plus a religious studies course, Old and New Testament complete, in my senior year. Plus, get ready. Then that's when I decided I'm going to take go to graduate school.
0: I see okay we're almost there Um, (laughs) what do you remember about high school
1: not caring what a lot of people thought about me Mm. I've, I've never been I've never had a need to be you know in the in crowd and now when I read or go back to or read about reunions the people in the in crowd have become nothing that's a terrible thing to say but if I could get that message to high school kids today, yeah. right? And you have a preteen. I look. He became what? <laughs> mm-hmm. And a couple of them who really became no surprise. I knew this one was going to be amazing, major power lawyer in New York City. Mm-hmm. This, but yeah. It's
0: satisfying in
1: a way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I no, know, I know that's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was saying to my. Uh, You'll get to this in a minute, but I wrote. Your boy is going to go when he goes to Canyon. Is going to do A through G, right? Going to get ready for college. I led the team that wrote A through G, and I led the team that you know. I wrote pieces of it, and I'm thinking. 52 percent of California kids do A through G. How many of those people can say that Mm -hmm. that they did something like that? Now that that maybe, I say I didn't care. Maybe I really cared.
0: I mean, because you were gonna go to college. No, oh, yeah, you knew that. Th- you knew that, so you sort of had, so you sort of had to prepare mm-hmm. for that in a way. Yes. I mean, was that where your focus was, academics?
1: Yeah, yeah. They, yeah.
0: And then, so how did you, how do you choose Franklin and Marshall?
1: How do I choose Franklin and Marshall? Small liberal arts college, two hours away from home. I was a baby. I mean, the idea that I would go to a reed in Oregon or something, oh my goodness. Too far. Yeah, so it was small. It was, uh, my good friend went to Dickinson, which was literally really across the, the river. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, they, made me, you know, they gave me scholarship money.
0: How was it to leave home?
1: Awful, awful. I mean, I, I had my own finished basement and I had my own den on the first floor, and my own room upstairs. And I got upset when one of my brothers came because I had to share a bathroom. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, my joke with my wife is if that if I, she had nine years between her and her brother who was older. I had this fourteen, and we said if we ever have a third, there's gonna be a fourth. Because <laughs> <laughs> we ain't doing that. Yeah. And no, I would not recommend that. I would never. My mother used to when she sh- I should have raised pigs. She would say, <laughs> yeah, "Right." Or when we try to watch Miss America, she'd take her. She always wore spikes and whatever. I don't know how she cleans the house in spikes. She right. cleans the house before the cleaning lady came out. <laughs> she would take her spike and throw that uh, the stiletto like you know,
0: throw the stiletto at us. Yeah. Oh my gosh! But you had to go away. Yes, you said she made I there
1: that was, place. yes. I think in today's terms. They wanted the empty nest. I mean, they were old, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, bless their souls. I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. And it was rough. I was a baby. Even though my friend was, he was about 40 miles away, I was a baby. Very immature. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't even have to fold my laundry. Uh, I got fresh sheets every day. I got fresh towels every day. Not because I was outside getting dirty, because I couldn't get hurt. You know? When people read this, they going not think, he here's a whack job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so what do you remember about those undergraduate years? Um, I mean, I know you had struggles at home because your father was ill, but what about when you were there on campus and getting that degree, what, what do you remember?
1: Very, very competitive. I did not do well my first semester, and then I was dean's list the rest of the time out. And I paired up with a bunch of people. That college at that time, I don't know what it is today, I abby mean, but Franklin and Marshall College, when I was there, got more students into the medical school of their first choice than any other college in the country except for colleges that had their own medical school. So you talk about, I mean, we, there are doctors who pioneered stuff out of Franklin and Marshall, if you know what my base I don't know what it is now. So uh, I glommed on to and learned good study habits from the Mm pre-meds, whom I really respected. And they all went to places like Hopkins, Penn, and Harvard for medical school. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was was not going to not do well. It was a self-direction. And I had the choice of graduate schools. I got money at graduate schools. Yeah. Well, That's why I did that. I was a Dean's a student. I got academic award. Uh, what do I remember about college? I, it's the true statement, and that's a great question because, and I've said this to my kids and they just roll their eyes because I know they didn't do this. There was, say, there was a weekend. So you have Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. I can honestly say to you, I never, ever, ever went out on a Sunday night. I was studying. If I went out on Friday night, I would not go out on Saturday night. If I went out Saturday night, you know I hadn't been out Friday night. And there was a lot of party. It was all male then. Mm. And so there was, you know, the Hilde's Bar. We all went to Hilde's Bar for birthdays. But if I was at Hilde's Bar Friday, I ain't going to be there Saturday. So I was very, very serious. And uh, uh, so I was not... Into, I was in a fraternity, and that's a source of friendship. I'm still in contact with them. In fact, I'm going to see some of them in the not too distant future. So, there was the fraternity life, and I was an officer in the fraternity. But sometimes I wonder if I missed something. I wonder if I missed something not going to a co ed school. Hmm. I wonder if I missed something. Uh... I know being at home with older parents, I would have been distracted, Abby. That would not have been a good choice not doing the way I wanted to do it. Being there, I mean, I would wake up and I would, you know, I didn't even want to go to the cafeteria over there or go over there because I could get something quick and I'd have to deal with people because then I could do notes. I was a grind. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I was a grind.
0: It's almost like your mother knew. Yeah. (laughs) what was best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, the adjustment was rough. It was was rough.
0: Yeah. So, So the sociology part of it, did you sort of just fall into it anyway because you had
1: all the units? Okay. I had, oh, yes. I needed, they, that one of the great things about that college was they enforced GE. You were going to get a foreign language whether you liked it or not. You were going to get math whether you liked it or not. You you're going to get, you know, eight units of history whether you liked it or not. So I needed a social science elective. I, up to that point I was a Spanish major because remember I had all this dual immersion stuff and I was coasting on that. And then it it's not right so I took sociology and I told my parents if I have to continue majoring in sociology I'm not going back to college period if I continue majoring major in Spanish I'm not going to go back to college hmm. and they said um, remember my one brother dropped out and the one in front of me was the handsome playboy and here they have little Jackie and they're all <laughs> day I mean, it's a terrible scenario yeah. And, yeah, and I said do what you want
0: do what you want. Just, Just get it.
1: Get it. So it meant I had to register, and as a senior, I had a priority. So I got. To, I had to take methods, statistics, theory, and elective, and the Bible. The whole freaking Bible. <laughs> oh boy, oh
0: goodness!
1: I did well, but I mean, I got graduate school out of it. So yeah, but yeah. So that's that was, and it was interesting to me. And I got, in that, co- co- in that subset of people who going to graduate school, I got the highest GREs of anybody going to graduate school. And I, and that was in November or October of my senior year. And I only had one complete sociology course the intro before that. So, yes, yeah, so I'm going up with all these people. We drove to University of Pennsylvania. I got like something in the 98th percentile. It was, wow. yeah. And that's, that, that, that shows to me, that's the fit. Not bragging, but that's a fit. Yeah. And that's why I tell my students, get a fit. If your major isn't a fit for you, see, that informed my classroom. Because, I mean, I'm, I was doing the Spanish stuff and taking all this GE stuff. And I was doing fine in Spanish, but we were getting to the senior level here, and you had comprehensive exams. My college had a comprehensive exam. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just new major. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yes,
0: definitely. So what, what led to grad school then? Were you, you were encouraged by professors to- I had, now
1: talk about, going back to your original question, about my methods professor and my family professor took a job at Western Reserve University. And we got, I, I had him for eight units in the fall. I don't know if I had anything in the spring. And that's when I applied for graduate school, and I asked him, he said, that's where I'm going. And he got me a free ride. Wow. And I, so I was an NIMH fellow. And what, an NIMH fellow? National Institute of Mental Health. Okay. So I got a free ride. I made money in graduate school. That had a travel, <laughs> st- <laughs> I, don't if, I had a travel stipend, I had oh book allowance, I had, oh yeah.
0: So how would you feel about going to Ohio?
1: Well, that was fine, I, I was no longer a baby. Mm-hmm. I was no longer a baby. So, uh, yeah, I was no longer a baby. So that, was, that worked out very well, very well. I mean, Cleveland, they always talk about the mistake on the lake and the river that caught on fire. Cleveland has the most representative, or one of the most representative art museums in the world. Cleveland has one of the best orchestras in the world. It did then and it does now. You can, t- now you can take a subway, from the campus, right from the airport, oh. so they, you know, go to that rapid transit, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's a lot going for you know Cleveland. It was you know I was able to go down to Washington D.C. for a day, you know whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: So what was it a master's and PhD or was a master's it? Okay. And PhD. Master's and PhD. Okay. So what did you decide um, would be the focus of your research?
1: Well, now my mentor there was a family sociologist. So he was doing a study of widowers, and I published the first major study of widowers in my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I did library work for him, and uh, that was a great experience, because he had faith in me. Well, I, I was a good student, as undergraduate. graduated. He wasn't, ris- he was the new faculty member going to this new institution, and he drags me along, and I wasn't a high risk. I mean, that sounds vainglorious. I don't mean. I mean, I demonstrated that I. Right. So he wasn't. You know, oh, we going to take a chance on this one.
0: <laughs> and so, what what was it about this, this, this widowers topic that?
1: had never been done. Yeah. Oh. Never been done. And a lot about widows,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And the poverty, the widow's experience, and the differential income, and having to move back to home. But I did forty one intensive case analyses of widowers who lost their wife through death Mm. and we did some interesting things like not one person agreed to participate in our study if the wife had committed suicide so that was sort of like a little research note what does that mean if your wife takes her own life you wouldn't you know Uh, how men were isolated by their ex ex ex-in-laws how ex-in-laws discriminated against their kids once he started to get a life again so there was, it was fascinating. I got a grant, an NSF grant through the university. It was NSF money that I hired people to do the interviews. They were, they were intensive, five or six hours, some of them. There was, you know, engineer men who couldn't run a washing machine, men whose wives died suddenly, and that was a big, that just emerged as one of the pioneering things is the preparation for death. If you have preparation, even if it's two days, you can do something in two days. Even if you're very angry at each other, you can make it whole Mm -hmm. in two days, but if you're very angry at each other and somebody gets run over and it's gone, you can't make that whole. So uh, that was one of the – and that was what we started.
0: Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so this is a little off topic, but you're – I'm curious because you're in college and grad school in the 1960s. Yes. So – What do you remember about that historical period? I
1: remember 1960 to 1964, there was really very little going on, big time. It was starting. And in 1964, my commencement from college, Huntley and Brinkley, the television commentators, were our commencement speakers. And Goldwater was about to get the nomination, so they went after Goldwater. And the extremism in America isn't that I mean that's wow. yeah, right, 50 some odd years ago uh, when I was in Cleveland I we I went to Cleveland, June of sixty, September of 64 to, I got married in August of 65 and you know things were heating up with Lyndon Johnson big time mm-hmm. and I can remember being exactly on our apartment patio or fire escape when I heard Bobby Kennedy died and of course Cleveland had the riots so you could hear bullets, you could smell smoke, because we were on the fringe of the city, on the fringe of the ghetto. Right. The campus is on the fringe of the ghetto there. So that was, that was tumultuous. The, we had, I'm blocking his name, the very famous minister. Oh, I should remember his name. He laid down in front of the bulldozer and got national attention. Do you remember, he was, I can see the beautiful church over there was part of, on the Mm -hmm. physical part of the campus. Mm -hmm. And he he was a big pro, I had Benjamin Spock. Did you know I studied under Benjamin Spock?
0: No.
1: I I audited his classes.
0: No, Dr. Spock. Oh my goodness. What do you, tell me about that. What do you remember about him?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: He was a role model in a way because he was famous for his anti-Vietnam Vietnam piece, and so people used to, I remember him talking about, people used to buy his baby book and burn it and mail him the ashes, and he would just laugh. He said, I just made two more. He'd open these envelopes. Of course, the university didn't do things to envelopes the way they would do now, but you know, he would open the envelope with all these ashes, and he would just think, yeah. I loved it. I mean, it was informed my family studies, actually, and as a parent.
0: Mm -hmm. So so the 60s were quite interesting. Yes, living
1: in Cleveland, Cleveland. living with the riots, yes. And also then when stuff was going on in Chicago at the Democratic Convention in 68, right, Cleveland was alive. Cleveland was bubbly. We had Mark's – I don't know the date that he was – the first, he became a Carl Stokes became the first black mayor of a major city. I don't know his dates, but I was in Cleveland when I think when some of that was going. I, I, I don't, don't hold me to that. that Maybe bad memory. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was it was lively. It was uh, it permeated conversations because you had several faculty members who were leaders in what became the anti-war movement. Benjamin Spock was huge.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did the these events shape your political leanings?
1: I was too busy studying. Mm-hmm. I mean that sounds <laughs> no. I was too busy you know doing chi-squares and mm-hmm. statistical packages. Not really, not really. Uh, a lot of the people were very, very dedicated. Some of them, I thought, were along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And a couple two or three of that latter category dropped out of the program, so I don't know what was real. But there were some really authentic people who truly believed in the, the anti-war movement. I had great respect for them. And one of the best theory professors I ever had became a national leader in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, uh, you know,
0: Well, and, and you were a student.
1: So right. I was a student. I was, I was, no. The
0: draft or anything else. I had
1: a draft deferment because I was a graduate student. Mm-hmm. So that sort of, you know, that sort of gives you a casualness mm-hmm. and unless an they fair sure. stuff. Sure. You know, so, how did you meet your wife, Sue? Sue was dating my college roommate, and they were having trouble, and they broke up, and the rest is history. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, and he, he turned out to be our best man.
0: Oh, it works I mean, out, uh, out as it should. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And you met her in Cleveland, I think? No, that? I
1: met her, and she was an undergraduate at State College at, down the road from Franklin and Marshall.
0: Oh, okay, so you
1: were in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay, so did she
0: go with you then to
1: Cleveland? No, not the first year. Okay. We got engaged our first year and got married in August, and then we moved out. Right. And you,
0: you had two children?
1: Two children. Robin was born there, and then we moved out here when she was five weeks old. Right,
0: right.
1: With and the you, six cats.
0: With the six cats, that's right.
1: And then we, uh, two years later, John joined us. I arrived on campus August 27th, 1969.
0: Yeah, so tell me about The Voyage West.
1: Oh, The Voyage West. The Voyage West is moving material, I think. My brothers, my mother-in-law flew out, and my brothers met, so that was Saturday, and the moving van didn't come, and the moving van didn't come, and I have a brand new Ford station wagon and a 65 Mustang. Okay, my brothers were to drive the Mustang, and I was going to drive the station wagon with Sue and the baby and her mother. Okay, so the moving van didn't come, moving, the moving van comes. So we get on the, that's the, so how they clear out the apartment. We were ready for them, but I mean, we were, okay, because we had, a, my brothers were flying from Kennedy Airport in New York to meet us at O'Hare. and Then we were going to go to the Holiday Inn. So we get there, and... How it ever worked? I lost Sue on the Ohio Turnpike. I don't know how we ever found each other. <laughs> and we uh, get there and we're both at the airport and my brother and brothers come, we barely beat them. And so we went to the hotel in Chicago. We had one, three rooms. So I arranged this all before we got went. So weeks and weeks before I had been on the phone with Holiday Inn and I said, I need three rooms in Chicago. I need three rooms in Omaha. Yeah, you know. I need three rooms in, what's going to come here to Omaha, Cheyenne. And so we we took, it was a five-day trip across country, mm-hmm. yeah, Cheyenne and then Salt Lake and then Las Vegas. and then. So we had, my brothers had the Mustang, which is original 65, $75 a month for 36, 24 months or something. It was. I didn't a stick shift, I didn't have to do a stick shift, <laughs> had to get it air conditioned, which was very expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. So they had the six cats in cages in the back. And I had my mother-in-law and the baby and Sue in the wagon, and so we dog-teamed. Wow. And so my brothers, who thought anything west of the uh, Hudson River was uncivilized. <laughs> Even New Jersey, they get to Wyoming in the middle of the nowhere, beautiful Cheyenne. And they, <laughs> my one brother was such a wasp. He said, now what do you do out here for fun? Or, what you do out here? Wasn't even, and the one man looks right at him and says, we shoot cans. <laughs> <laughs> then we go to Las Vegas. We, from, it was from Cheyenne. From so like the, the new wagon catches on fire partially in the engine. So we get that taken. My brothers took care of that for me. And uh, and then we get to Las Vegas and my brother's carrying Robin, who is five weeks old, on his arm like this and almost gets arrested because he has an infant on the carpet in, in uh, the Tropicana or one of the big ones. So he's walking around like this and he gets escorted with this baby because she liked to be, she, know, she had a colic or whatever she liked to be at. Yeah, you put the baby on your arm like right, this. And, right. and then we come here and we're at the Holiday Inn or some restaurant, yeah, Holiday Inn at uh, Raymond. The apartment, and they stayed for a week and helped us set up. Every day, other day we did something like Universal Studios or Disneyland. So,
0: had you been here before?
1: Came out to look at the apartment.
0: So, what were your first impressions? Of well, California? I was the
1: people in Ohio said to me, "You're going to Orange County? It's home of the birches, right?" It's 1965. Mm-hmm. Well, then yeah, that was 1965. No, that was no. Bob was born in sixty nine. Yeah, sixty yeah. nine. That's when we drove out with them, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and so I, it was. So Sue goes for her six week checkup. You can identify with this. And the doctor's walking down the hall with his arm on her, his shoulder, his arm. And he says, "Your husband's a sociologist. That means he's a communist, right?" <laughs> that was her. So you know, it was uh, very not very crowded. It was you know the campus we opened. I met my faculty, met people for the first time, and the, for the first weeks that the HSS building opened.
0: Wow! So so. That's so, so let's back up sure. for a minute. So, how does the job at Cal State Fullerton emerge for you?
1: Okay. We, uh, I applied. There were several jobs available in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and other areas. In Las Vegas. Uh, and that's another story, but uh, so my mother had died in March of '68. Okay, Robin was born in July of '69. I don't know, honestly, Abby, if I would have come out here if my mother was still alive. Sure. You know, only grandchild, uh, a daughter, granddaughter. But that decision was long. I don't know if I would have done that. So there were. I wanted something different. I didn't know California. You always, you always hear when you're back then, it's the golden opportunity, and it was. It turned out to be. Right.
0: So how did? You, so did you interview for the job? I
1: was a telephone interview. I interviewed for several other Cal States. They interviewed me. They, they, a couple of other three of them came to the Cleveland Airport to interview me, and uh, they, interestingly enough, they all said the same salary, and I said, and then Cal State Fullerton. Talked about salary, they talk lower than that. So I said, "Why?" I'm looking at this so that those interviews were good preparation, first of all. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad giving you what I know now about some of those campuses. i don't go there. Yeah. Uh, But the week after I got this offer and I committed, I got a huge shouldn't say it that way, (laughs) a nice offer from UNLV. Mm -hmm. And if I had gotten that offer first. There was something exotic about Las Vegas for a sociologist, and I'm not a gambler, but this, that, and once you get there, you know, people who live there hardly ever go to the strip, right? But there was something exotic about that. So California was exotic, Vegas, the offer was better, uh, but I wasn't going to dishonor that, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so you get here, right. and what was Cal State Fullerton like, the campus?
1: You could drive a tank through the business classes without seeing a woman. You could, uh, there were very few Hispanics in my social classes. Uh, The Vietnamese presence was not really big, Uh, but that did come. Uh, The buildings were new and fresh. Uh, there was political jockeying going on in the department, which was awkward for a young faculty member.
0: Jockeying, mm-hmm. uh, how so?
1: Well, pitting uh, chair against chair kind of aspirants, and uh, aspirants, plural, and, you know, they were yeah, I used to talk about using children as pawns in this conversation today. It was like using young faculty as pawns, so I went into the job market. And had some good nibbles, and, but they would have been relocated to the south. And I, before they got any further, I stopped that. Okay, Because Sue at that time then had gone back to work. Mm. So we were really then a dual career family.
0: And she was teaching?
1: Yeah. At that point she was teaching. She became an administrator, but at that point she was teaching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, uh, yeah, that was, it's a little different, you know, when you're, and it should be because you're being respectful, but, yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're both educators. Yes. Yeah. So what, um, tell me more about the Sociology Department and being a part of this new institution, new faculty. Yes. That
1: was a great experience because Sociology hired six new faculty for the term I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, we all were in the offices in the center corridor on the seventh floor, 222. Two, two. Mm-hmm. And two years ago we were in Hawaii with Jerry Rosen and his family and my children in Kauai accidentally on a vacation. So we spent a lot of time together. They no. live right here in Fullerton. No
0: kidding. He did a wonderful study here uh, on the Chicano movement. Yes, that's Jerry. And we have that have his work here and those interviews are priceless. Aren't they? Yeah. That's oh, the Jerry. world. Small yes. World. Yes, very grateful to him.
1: Right. So... Uh, so there were young, a lot of young faculty, a lot of people without tenure but on the way, uh, a lot of people establishing their research agendas and their identity as in the discipline. Were and they the, all
0: PhDs or all like you get in progress? Mixed, out. mixed,
1: mm-hmm. the mixed, yeah, mixed. Yeah, I think probably three and three. Yeah. And uh, that's a good question because I believe if I stayed in Cleveland, t- I left Cleveland in. 69 and got my PhD in 71. I believe if I had stayed in Cleveland, I would have gotten it in 70. I lost a year mm-hmm. relocating, developing courses and stuff. I would not recommend that to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always run the risk, you got to finish. <laughs> <laughs> and this place now makes that imperative, so that's good for the students. But uh, So there was a Different requirements for the degree. They were always messing with the requirements, in related fields, and that kind of stuff. So it was a fluid time. So it was a growth time, and it was fun to watch. Because I knew nothing about that. I was not the least bit involved in any collegial governance at all, in graduate school or undergraduate school. Nothing, nothing. So for me, it was all just watch all this dynamic. Some of it wasn't comfortable, personally, and uh, you know it was. Uh, a time when I think the department—that's a great question because looking back on it, I think we were pretty insular. We really didn't have much involvement around the campus. If I look at who was involved, there wasn't much involvement.
2: Hmm.
1: But that's, you know, you got six new ones so that you know appear, but you got three or four, or five others in front of you. So,
0: yeah. okay, so. How would you describe yourself in the classroom? And what was it like getting in the classroom? Well,
1: I taught at a Catholic university in Cleveland. I taught at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, and I taught at Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So I had kinds of different experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, our students, much like when I left, were very you know uh, new to the academy. It was. I went to a very traditional liberal arts college. I went to a very traditional graduate school, and then I come here where people take five and six years to get a degree because they're working or they have babies or they. And that that was just a different reality for me. So, but I ran to the very end a very traditional classroom. How so? Very lecture oriented. Mm. I'm not one of these to any, meeny, miny, most Sit in the corner and discuss theory and tell me what you feel about these theories. That's not Jack Bedell. You know. <laughs> no, I ran a very traditional classroom, and that's what I had and, uh, everywhere. So that was not very creative that way, although I did teach online, ultimately, mm-hmm. and I didn't translate uh, well online. My sense of humor doesn't go online. <laughs> but uh, so I would say that uh, it was very frequently mostly lecture, and then discussion, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be opening up and have the kids tell me about Marx without talking about Marx first and telling what's right and wrong or the, you know, the various, mm-hmm. you
0: know. Was there classes or topics that you enjoyed teaching the most?
1: Well, it would be family studies, family pathology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Having been at, had access to Benjamin Spock gave me probably more of an applied stream than most family sociologists at that time. Uh, so I would say, and, and also Heim work. Have you read that? That you got to read Heim between parent and teenager, yeah. between parent and child. <laughs> you know, a ball is for hitting. Brother is not for hitting. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I think, you know, that helped to grab the students a little more because I just wouldn't come in and discuss the Sussman's theory on disengagement and then leave it there.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It would be more, okay, what what can you do with this?
0: And what what sort of engagement did you have from the students?
1: A lot. Mm -hmm. A lot. Because I would say... uh, Personally, one of the most difficult roles I have to deal with is a bride. Bride is the center of the universe. Now, what I've just done is I've told you my values right up front. What are you going to believe that's going to come out of my mouth for the rest of the semester when we talk about brides? So you got it. I never said you got to write agree. You got to memorize this. You got to agree with it. But you're going to... I always, I always said to them, you know, I don't care whether you agree with this. You've got to know it to be a sociologist. Yeah. I don't care whether you agree with the median and the mode. You've got to know it. So I guess that's kind of controlling, huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what sorts of advice would you give these students, especially those interested in pursuing this field?
1: do research with faculty members a high impact practice we didn't call it that then but that's what it is is try to glom onto a faculty member who has research projects who you might be interested in working with bad grammar but to have topics that you're interested in and having working as a research assistant with that faculty member you may even get publications at it and my students did you may get conference pre- took students to israel on a conference presentation uh, I think you get, uh, go to the best school you can go to for graduate school. That's in the area that you like. I had a student say to me, and this is making this relevant to this question, I had a student say to me, Dr. Bedell, I want to go to Berkeley for law school, but Bolt, Berkeley's law school, is, I don't see why you pay, go into debt to go to Stanford if you can get into Berkeley. I mean, I really don't understand that model. And uh, so my student said to me, I'm going to go, want to, go to BART. I'm going to go to BOLT. And he says, uh, she says, rather, uh, I said, well, what are your backups? You got to you know, what are your backups? That's, so that's advice. I said, you don't, you have backups. You have a sure thing. You have a, you're going to die and go to heaven if you get it. And what's reality? And the student says to me, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to apply to any other place than BOLT. And I said, to her, Well you don't really want to be a lawyer, do you?
2: Hmm.
1: That's the kind of that's a question. I would never say you don't want to be a lawyer, but I, you know, that's phrased as a question so that they do the thinking. You know, how does this and I'll say to the students, how does this apply? You know? Yeah. And then they come forward with stuff. I mean, I had a student share that he was the fifth boy, Abby, of five boys. And it's when I never forgive this place. When they were peddling credit cards out in the quad, were you here when any of that was going on? Or you? No, but I heard about it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he had nothing. on. his mind—it's real for him. And this is another thing you teach with it. It's real for you. I would never cheapen, him. Like Mrs. Bailey said, you know, my fifth-grade teacher. Uh, yeah, I said, you know, uh, he was the nicest kid, and he bought fifteen hundred worth of DVD, CDs or whatever it was, uh, tapes. And he got the bike as the fifth boy. He got the shoes as the fifth boy. He got the top of the bunk bed as the fifth boy. And he came here and it was, oh my God. And we lost him. And so that's the type I would have conversations with. I would never take anything away from an office visit and bring it to the classroom. But going to that question, it's that you can do a lot. The hypotheticals. A real story was and going back to, this was a student came to me and I think when this is one of my last students. We were either on the tenth or eleventh edition of the textbook. Now it's a great textbook, and I know the whole controversy of textbooks, but data change, right? The data change. So uh, he said to me. Uh, did he need the latest edition of the textbook out I mean, And I said, well, what do you have? He said, I have the 7th. And we were 10th or 11th. I said, well, the history part's going to work for you, because I mean, how much does Durkheim change, right? And all that. And I said, but the data trends, and you're going to need to know about Hispanics and women and all this. And he said, well, I have the next installment due on my tattoos. And it's $1,800. And I said, well, there's no, I can't and he bombed that part of the test, and he got a D. And of course, that he never should have gotten a D. So those stories are right. So when you say, "What are the students like?" I am so impressed by what they overcome. I mean, that, what he was carrying. And so I, do, I, I had that kid in that class. I said, "I'm going to do a lot of self-esteem work in this class. If he's fifth out of five and feeling fifth out of five, we're going to work on that much more." Not directed by your right white away, whatever his name was. I'll never do that. But we're gonna. You know, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Yeah. So yeah, our, our students are my heroes in many ways, heroes and heroines, because I didn't have that. I just went away to this nice little ritzy college and cried a <laughs> lot when I was homesick. But yeah, I never had to worry about what these kids had to worry about. Yeah. And every time I do my domestic violence units, I would have students, especially males come to my office and say, you know, uh, my uncle violated me, they would get graphic, and my uncle violated me, and I finally told my mother, one of the most recent ones, I'll never forget, I told my mother what my uncle so-and-so did to me, sodomy, and uh, she punched me in the face, and don't you ever say that about your uncle again, you know, so you're in the class, you're with that. you don't get trained for this role, for that. You may not get that if you're a biochemist. He may not be doing well, but you're not going to know why. In the social sciences, at least in my field, you're going to know a lot if you're open to that and how you manage your curriculum.
0: You're almost like a makeshift counselor. In, in a way.
1: way, in a way. And how you select. If you're skillful in selecting materials, you can reach them. You know, I'll say, uh, I do this whole big thing on weddings because I get this thing about brides. <laughs> the center of the universe is the synonym for bride. And I talk about the role of the bat- the uh, rehearsal dinner. And the rehearsal dinner is the last meal where he's the son. And it's his meal with his parents. And I'll say, Gentlemen, you want to have your favorite meal with your parents is f- frog's legs and pizza. And if your bride to bed he says no, Hell no! What having pizza and frogs legs at the, the rehearsal dinner? I have two. One word for you: run. <laughs> She's not for you, and then never. <laughs> and you know, eventually left. A lot of women students don't like that piece.
0: <laughs> so you got
1: to be aware of that, right? <laughs> this is when you have a son. Watch what he brings home. <laughs> right. right. Yes. And I will say to the kids: What would you rather hear? Your fifteen-year-old sister's on the pill, or your fifteen-year-old sister's pregnant? Right. Now, where are you coming from? What values does your response reflect in? And that's the type of thing I would do.
0: Revealing. <laughs> what, is, what did you like most about teaching? Because we're going to start getting into the administrative aspect.
1: Sure. The here. thing I like most about is the, I love first semester of the fall because I did when I was here. Because you see these freshmen walking around, you know, some of them still carrying lunch their mothers make. And I would say to my students, you're in my class, you don't bring a lunch your mother made. And, you know, and then we joke about it, it's, and I say, really, that's none of my business. But then I love commencement, because you see if you follow, and they keep in touch. I still get notes from students. I still get notes from students. In fact, where were we? I was in Washington and met a student on the street a couple of weeks ago. I had 11,000 students here. And might you know, 11,000. Wow, Uh-huh. Uh, forty-six years.
0: Eleven thousand lives. Yes. Touched in sure.
1: You know, I've been to student funerals, student weddings, baptisms, kind of thing. Uh, so I think, give me that question again. That's what you liked most about teaching. Oh yeah. Teaching. Uh, most about teaching. Is that how you? This an ego thing here, as just as there isn't in my administration career with A through G uh seeing the seeing the curriculum work for them and seeing even if it doesn't work at least they had to reckon with it right and uh, so yeah uh, I, I could see it was wonderful when I uh <laughs> one of my favorite students. Uh, male student in the class, there was a woman, a young woman in the back of the room talking about her boyfriend, bought her, surprised her with an engagement ring, Abby. And she says, I hated this ring. So the next day, I took the ring back and exchanged it. Well, Abby, every male had wanted to see. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's start. you whatever now how about you? And then I said... I knew I had to do something then. I said, well, okay, let's talk here now. Well, I didn't want to insult her. She was sharing in the class, right? I can't put her down. I had a student (laughs) who bought, uh, this is the things you like, The uh, student whose boyfriend at the time bought a Range Rover. I remember this because I've always left it after them, even though they have terrible records. Mm -hmm. And he had a $1,000 a month payment for seven years. Yes. Okay. And they were living together. And so he goes to this, buys this car and she goes with him. And then the next day she moves out, totally takes everything. And he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she says, I'm not going to be, she says, I'll get rid of the car. I'll get rid of the car. And she says, I'm not going to be responsible for that. you made this decision. And she shared with the class. So you can take that and go with that in terms of communication, in terms of who is unfair. Was anybody unfair if they were being true to themselves? Um, so yeah, that was. So I think one of the best things. I get excited about this. One of the best things is being able to impact. I think to yeah. make a verb, but not a believer. But
0: yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Am I giving you what you want? Are you okay?
0: Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Okay. This okay. is fantastic. I okay. love, the stories. I love okay. the stories. Why don't we take a quick break? Okay, uh, I'm going to pause it and we'll continue. All right, we're back from a brief break. So we're making the foray now into administration. So why don't we start with you, you become chair right. of the sociology department right. not too long after you get there. Right. So... Um, what do you, What about that experience do you remember? What was that
1: like? Okay, that was interesting because I, I became chair not that long after I finished my Ph.D. And because I remember people, the one who was chair, wanted not to be chair any longer. So when are you getting your degree, Jack? When are you getting your degree, Jack? So that was really a form of sponsored mobility from within the department. People asked me to be chair. Uh, the... Uh, It was fun because I had close contact through that being chair with Hazel Jones, who woman who was one of the highest-ranking administrators in the CSU at the time when she was dean of the college, which was then Letters, Arts, and Sciences. And uh, we uh, forget when we became HSS. It was going to be social science and H. Mm -hmm. And what are the... Joan Greenwood of the English department said, I wouldn't be part of a college that's, shh.
2: So it became his. I
1: love Joan. She also went too early. Uh, so what it was like, it was um, my first foray into administration. And in the college, there were high-powered chemists and physics who were chairs. So it was analogous to my being an undergraduate where I sort of leached on to the pre-meds I sort of leached on to these chairs who were uh, very successful in terms of getting resources for their programs and uh, getting the ability to get space. So I learned a lot about space negotiation, I learned about budget. Now, remember, HSS, that college opened in the fall of 69, the building. So the building wasn't that old, and there was a lot of jockeying for space, and sociology didn't get too much of it, comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And so we had to fight for whatever we could get, uh, you know, share space with other departments. But they were, and their space is golden, you know, and it's not necessarily something about people are rational about or they share so uh that was a good learning experience which stood me well yeah
0: did you like being chair
1: i didn't like the personnel part because there were friends who you have to make personal decisions that it's you know boundaries bleed mm-hmm. and are you being a chair or are you being a friend and that's true we have part-time faculty you have students who are tas you have you know secretaries and that personnel part was not one of my favorite parts Mm -hmm. and i often wonder would it would have been different if i my first foray into administration was not managing if you will for the lack of a better word friends as well as colleagues but i learned and i learned not to segment i learned to segment my life so that i was a chair role not a friend role and i made that clear
0: it's, a, it's just something you have to do when you're in that. Yes. You were chair for quite a while, six years the first time. Was it that long? It said, 70 70. <laughs> <laughs> it said 72 to 78. That's about I
2: right. Think, yeah. Then, yeah. It's
0: a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, I mean, I know you, you chaired later, um, years later, too, and then you also chaired other departments. That's true. So how does this
1: happen? The dean of one of the other colleges, they asked me to apply to be dean of a joint degree program in that college. It wasn't the dean; it was an administrator in that college, rather, they asked me to apply to, to be uh, dean, to be uh, department chair in that department, which had a heavy sociology background. Abby was a multidisciplinary degree, so it would have been natural that he would have gone to any of the participating departments. This, this
0: is anthropology. No, that
1: was child development. Oh, that was
0: child development. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Tell me more. So tell me more about
1: that. So uh, that was interesting because I met with, I got to be around a whole bunch of departments that did not, uh, remember I would sit on the council of chairs in a different building with HSS, LAS types, a, then HSS types over the years. But this was more of uh, applied sciences and Child development and that kind of thing, health sciences kind of thing. So that was a good learning experience. See, I, do, I don't do well being bored, <laughs> I'm, and I don't. I, I always I think that's a character weakness. So the, be, being in different uh, settings is very good for me. And I, you know, uh, sometimes I've actually wondered if I had a form of ADHD and that I needed that yeah yeah to do that, and that provided that he was very uh Pete fascion was the dean then, and he was very supportive, very supportive, and there were lots of majors, and so we did lots of interesting things. It was a large teacher preparation program. My wife was a teacher, and some of my best friends were teachers at the time that we made here, so it was a good fit
0: and then so and then what about anthropology and engineering which came?
1: Engineering came first. Mm-hmm. Electro- I was associate vice president of acting of the university, and the then vice president, Dean Schweitzer, said, Jack, we have some issues in electrical engineering. Would you be willing to go over there?
2: Okay.
1: So we went over there. I
2: see.
1: And uh, that would talk about learning experience. I, I mean, say. I hardly know what EMEC square means, but, uh, you yeah. <laughs> know. And uh, so, uh, but... My, I'm, that's a, you, Abby, that's a good question, because I believe if you have somebody in the department who really knows the discipline, you can chair any department. I really believe that, because there's guidelines for collective bargaining, there's guidelines for hiring part-time, there's guidelines for, super, for supervision of interns, there's guidelines for service learning. So I don't care whether it's music or electrical engineering, as long as you have discipline experts you can manage a department and do it well.
0: And how were you received as, you know, sociologist in these other departments as chair, then? (laughs)
1: Uh, Mixed. Mixed. Uh, When you have a department that's divided, one of the things that may unite them is an an interloper or an outsider coming in. I think when you have a department where people... Are uh, wanting to position themselves, they can do things that make life problematic, and I've experienced all of that. And that's not being a martyr. I mean, that's just the reality of everyday life.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, they say the smaller the stakes, the bigger the fights, and I think there's some truth to that, especially in the academy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but you know, if you, my goal it has been always to put the students first. So, if you have a department that has a terrible graduation rate, and you have a department that, when all the awards are coming out on campus among the faculty and you ain't getting any of them, and you have a department whose enrollment is on a negative slope and a campus that's on a positive slope, we gotta have some serious conversations here. And if you put those, if the framework for those conversations, regardless of department, I mean, is what's in the best interest of the students.
0: So how would you describe your leadership style as an academic chair?
1: Collaborative, I hope. Directive when needed, I hope. Uh, funny as appropriate, I hope. Uh, willing to admit its a mistake. Uh, try to bring the best out of people regardless of the discipline. See, that's another thing that transcends discipline. You don't need to be a sociologist to bring the best out of a sociologist. You know, then you would always have a dean who's a sociologist. You'd have 24 different deans in HSS because they're right. You don't do that. That's a skill set that transcends discipline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, I do not like to be associated with failure. So uh, and I'm, this whole notion that failure is an opportunity to get better, that's baloney. Failure is failure. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's well overdone like a cheap piece of meat on the barbecue. So I like success, and I like to have people feel successful. And that's satisfying.
0: Yeah. So... You also go into the academic senate. Yes. An organization which you chaired s- six times, if I'm correct. Or? I think
1: it's seven, but Jose Cruz said it was six, but I think it's seven. But we'll go with multiple times.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more multiple. than a handful. <laughs> right. Right. So. Yes. So how do you? How does this come? How do you get involved with the academic senate? Okay, I
1: ran for senate chair against a person who became one of my good friends, Jane Hippolito. She won. The secretary during so then the secretary position, I didn't know anything about politics, and I read I mean they she had a good campaign. I mean, and her friends had a good campaign. She deserved it. Mm-hmm. She was she's a great person. And her secretary, Senate Secretary, resigned and I asked said I would like to be that and she strongly encouraged me. So I started by being secretary.
2: Okay.
1: Now I would recommend to you and to anybody who has a pulse that one of the best ways to advance leadership in a program and a department and an organization is to become its secretary. Because there you're responsible for knowing what goes on, for recording what goes on, but also you get access to the archives, you get access, and it's a job, frankly, that many people don't want. So you're doing a favor in a lot of the organizations to take on secretary and to have good minutes. And what I do know with the school board for the county, minutes are legal documents. I don't know if they share that status on a university campus now, that kind of organization. But so I, I would strongly recommend if you have an opportunity to become secretary in an organization, that's one step that you consider taking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it worked for me, I mean, the rest is history. It certainly okay.
0: worked. Why did you want to be a part of the Academic Senate?
1: Because I wanted to be the best chair I could be. I wanted to be where decisions were made. I certainly wanted to be involved in the committees that would affect curriculum. I uh, certainly would want to be involved in uh, student affairs policy. I was the first faculty member in this campus to serve, I was told, I, I never checked it out, but I was there with students, so I was the first, and I've done it multiple times, to be the faculty liaison to the student government. I was the first faculty member to be on their finance committee, and they put me on their finance committee for the whole student government. And then I, I was the faculty academic senate liaison to the student government several times.
0: Wow. What did you What did you learn from that?
1: There are a lot of the student government types over be lawyers. It was true when I was statewide senate chair. Mm-hmm. There are lawyers in the wannabe. Many of them. A lot of nice kids. Again, you see uh, a lot of differential involvement, very dramatically, like faculty senators, very dramatically in terms of their commitment to the organization, and particularly the organization of that group. So it was a reflection, a microcosm of you know, life of, that's, pedantic but I mean it was they uh, a lot of them really cared and a lot of them you know you go to events and they're now major people in the community and they still love this place Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: so what were some important issues that you addressed over the years while serving on the academic senate Um, successes challenges or ongoing issues that you dealt with
1: that's one of my favorite questions (laughs) because uh, We became, one of my last, when Willie Hagan was president, so short time, I'm going to go reverse order here. One of my favorite things we did was we wrote, as our executive committee, we wrote the first all-smoking ban of the CSU. We wrote it. When your car hits that front driveway, you're not supposed to have anything on fire. Mm -hmm. Now, could this be my family background, right? (laughs) Maybe. So maybe our background informs us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very proud of that. And it galls me when I see faculty smoking with students out front of the HSS building, and I, I candidly, I don't even walk over that way. I don't even want to see that mentoring and that role modeling. My problem. Uh, I'm very proud of that. I'm, one of the things I'm proudest of is writing the document that put the staff on the Academic Senate. We had uh, no staff and I knew rumors were that Milt was going to go in the not-too-distant future. And I wanted to think, okay, I wanted the Academic Senate to be the most representative body on campus, but we didn't have staff. At one point, we had seven students that got down to two when I was away. That's fine. So I, I wrote the resolution to put the two staff members picked by the staff on the Academic Senate. Thank you. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I don't know how, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Uh, so on the Academic Senate, uh, one day I was reading, mm-hmm. i got to get a life right, Title V, <laughs> and it talks about faculty having a role in space, beautification, placement of art, uh, that type, type of thing, and mm-hmm. allocation of space. And I'm looking, I'm okay, what are we doing this? Where are we doing this? We're not. So we came up with the Campus Facilities and Beautification Committee. Now, if the Senate's doing it right, the master plan is coming up in a few weeks. They should be all over that, like a $2 suit. And they have the vehicle. So I'm proud of that. Uh, proud of the... Uh, the curriculum committees I sat on, in terms of courses that we approved, mm-hmm. I was the non scientist that Miles McCarthy asked to be on the curriculum committee to form the nursing program. Mm-hmm. So that's when Miles and I became very good friends, or professional friends. And so I was the so I'm sure sociology wouldn't like to hear that I was the non-scientist, but that, you know they had true scientists, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. uh, so that was on there. Uh, I was on that committee. I was on the committee that gave us the child development program. So I'm proud of that. That's had thousands of majors over the years. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things that I'm sort of like. Mm-hmm.
0: And you you mentioned that you were always. Concerned with helping the students yes. and advancing the students, so was that um, contentious with being on the academic senate versus you know faculty needs and student needs and sort of balancing the two?
1: No, because what the contention was frequently was between administration on the senate and faculty on the senate,
2: mm.
1: because faculty were thinking their faculty, and in many cases I agreed, were exercising their prerogative, their professional prerogative, for example, on a curriculum. And, oh, uh, plus-minus grading is another thing that I'm proud of that we did. Uh, and that came to mind because the administration said, we can't do plus-minus grading now, or they postponed it. Well, I'm always fearful. If you postpone something, it's like you postpone your engagement, that's not a good sign, right? <laughs> so I went like this, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I was chair of the Senate when they did that, when they postponed it for six months, because they couldn't get everything written, and in fairness, it was, we weren't clear, what is a C, because sometimes a C is a 1.9, sometimes it's right, so we had we had to go everywhere, and we didn't do it, so we had to go everywhere, where C, parentheses, 2.0, you know, that kind of thing, and so, yeah, I think, it was, no, I, I would say it would be that kind of thing. How many... Uh, Bice of the apple does the administration get in the development of a policy if the administration approves the document down the road but is here? No, not with students. Not with students. Mm-hmm. The students frequently play games. And faculty play games, you know, in terms of posturing and, oh my goodness, you can't let this happen, and, you know, that kind of thing. So there was always some drama, which was kind of entertaining, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. And how, how would you describe your leadership when it came to the Academic Senate? How would you solve it? Exactly the same.
1: Mm-hmm. That was, that was, use humor as appropriate. Do your homework. I do not like surprises. I told my wife, you, you give me a surprise birthday party for my 75th birthday, you're going to get a surprise letter from a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like surprises because I think I, that means I'm not in control as much as I want mm-hmm. so, uh, to be. So I prepare. Prepare okay. I, I would sit and say to the staff, and I had signs on my the podium: "Be classy, don't be New York. Be classy, don't be sarcastic." I would always have a sign on the podium. And I I had apologized once because it was the faculty member really annoyed me and I was not appropriate, so I had apologized. Gold the hell out of me, but that's another story. <laughs>
0: It takes a lot to apologize.
1: Yeah, well, it, I shouldn't have done it, and it, it was obvious that. I... Well, anyway, uh, so but that's a good memory actually because it was. Remember what I did to him, and that you had to you had to eat crow the next meeting. Mm-hmm. I stewed for two weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm sorry, did I get, get way late here? Are you okay? No, I
0: was, we were talking about leadership and.
1: It would Senate. be the same. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same.
0: So, what did you like about being on the Senate?
1: Meeting people, meeting from the different disciplines, that's, I thank Miles for that when he got me interested in the nursing piece, and then going to, you know, uh, another way when I, that's one of the things that attracted me to electrical. What do I know from electrical? I'm, you know, I can barely, I hire an electrician to change a bulb almost. I mean, what do I know from electrical? But, um, you know, ultimately they got reaccredited. accredited so, uh, ultimately, so I was gone then, but uh, at least, that was good. Uh yeah, I think uh, establishing guidelines for online courses. to answer this question in a reverse way. Brought, you know, uh, bringing people together, because when you're a traditional academic such as myself, online and having done online and like pieces are, and not liking pieces and saying, "Hey, listen, this isn't for me, big time," uh, those are informative. And I think so when you can share with that, I think that helps. It makes you feel like you're making a contribution.
0: Yeah,
1: definitely. And I I felt like being in disciplines outside of sociology and then being on the academic senate, I could be empathetic. And to me, that's the most salient human characteristic. And I think that's what sucks in our country today on both sides is the – institutionalized lack of empathy and nobody is on the side of the angels for me on this one and I think empathy I think those experiences help to make you empathetic.
0: I would agree. So are you still teaching um, during your administrative I always taught a course. You always taught a course. Mm -hmm. So what did you prefer? Teaching or administration? Probably
1: 5149 teaching because I think with the teaching is very personal. You can see Abby's lights go off and go on, okay? With administration, when you are on, I chaired the statewide academic senate for three terms, okay? And that's when I got picked out of that job to be associate vice chancellor to do admissions.
0: Right.
1: Right? So. Yeah, I would say 5149 or, f- you know, i, I that's, that's a great question because I really, I, uh, it's, I think it's part of my ego that I like to have an impact. And there's a very different impact in the classroom. When you have masculine male students crying in your office because they have been get emotional about this, they have been so abused by people whom they should be able to trust unequivocally. Or you have a student say that she's one of five sisters and the oldest sister gets everything, and so the five sisters have decided they're blackballing her wedding because of how the parents behaved. You can take that experience and go somewhere with it. Whereas if you're vice chancellor of the system, you can develop A through G, and you affect millions of students over the last 15 years. So, you know, that's, that's a great question. It's, when I was in the classroom, I'd say, oh, gosh, I'm going to have a whole bunch of first-week freshmen, whom I love because they can't even find the bathroom with, you know. <laughs> and then I'm at the administrator, and I'm dealing with trustees who are, you know. I, one of my best friends said to a trustee, who went on after a couple of weeks, he was a trustee and then went to be a regent. And this, he said to this trustee, what makes you qualified to be a trustee? He was very academic. And the trustee looks right at him and said, I raised millions of dollars for Jerry Brown. And I go, but we know where we're going with this trustee. <laughs> but being on, being on the statewide academic senate, the trustees come to you and they have every single case, they came to me and asked about what did I think about various presidential candidates. And if it was a different campus, I would say, give me 10 minutes, and I'll get back to the faculty.
0: Yeah, and how how was that different, being on statewide versus the campus?
1: Okay, that's a great question, because that was going on while the collective bargaining was in its nascent form. I can't speak to that now. But it was there was jockeying between the union types and the chancellor because the chancellor was trying to kill collective bargaining and then it passed and we got a contract and everything uh the state where you have it was, it's analogous in many ways because on some in, in some academic senate you have very parochial people they only know their school or their department mm-hmm well on the statewide senate you have very pro- some very few but you have some very pro- well on my campus we it's very so it's analogous to in here in our college we right so you just have that style so you have you get you learn how to deal with that and how to bring that out and how to i guess manipulate it into the best of the, for the body
0: mm-hmm. did you uh did you like being on the statewide
1: i and loved it, it. I loved it, yeah. um, It was uh, made one of my best friends, Ann Reynolds, Chancellor of the CSU. Uh, We became good friends. Uh, Being on the statewide Senate, uh, I got pulled from that to do the admissions. And and Summer Bridge, we developed Summer Bridge in detail for the kids to transition. Uh,
0: And why was that important? Because what were you noticing?
1: Because we had students who were having nothing but... Uh, three years of English and two years of high school math and that's all the preparation they had for the university and we ran the data which showed that when students had more they had a higher completion rate and higher GPA I don't know where that citation is right now I wish I had that hard because I given what the system has just done but uh, that was important to prepare the kids because I had seen I had been in the classroom for how many years? You know, two or three years in graduate school. So I'd seen the difference in kids and the advantage that some kids had Mm -hmm. by what high school they went to. Right. And that's telling for you with a little one. You know, you got right? You got to be right in there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids don't have people who are right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Not not pointing any fingers, but I mean it's just a fact of life. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So the bridge program, um, what, other th- what other things stick out to you or that you want to mention? With uh, I learned
1: more about reauthorization of higher education, which is going on right now <laughs> in the federal level. We worked with that. I learned a lot about financial aid. I mean, we had, hundreds, we had hundreds of millions of dollars of financial aid my office was responsible for, and the library. I had system-wide responsibility for the library when I was associate vice chancellor. So I learned about automation of the libraries, which I was in, you know, working instrumental with these people working with the Northridge reconfiguration, and the earthquake came, and this whole modern library tumbled in, <laughs> basically. So uh, it was just an interesting experience working with trustees. And, which now I do right now, I just got back from Washington last week, working with legislators and getting to the cues from legislators and learning that if you're not on the education committee, I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to your staff who knows about education. I'm not going to waste your time and mine. And that's exactly what I did last week in Washington. I spoke to staff about education. I don't need to meet with a member who is not on education. Right. That's a simple little lesson, but you think about it. You double your meetings, or you half your meetings, and you can be more effective. And I learned that through the Academic Senate, and, being, and I learned that through being uh, Associate Vice Chancellor. Because I was in Sacramento, because changing the admission standards, we were called racist. That was a way to keep out Hispanics and blacks in the market. We had bodyguards in two cities. That that were, and we had we were almost run off the campus. It was very threatening at Cal State LA, yeah. but it was people who had come from Northridge to Cal State LA that we were racist by we by saying you want we would increase academic standards is a subtext for keeping out the black and brown kids, and it was you know we could show them they have three years of math they're going to go into engineering maybe or four years of math they can't go in it with two, right. you know. So the were we know we were working at institutional explanations of racism and sexism, and that was that was the good feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Scary at time, yeah. times. Scary.
0: breaking down barriers. Yeah. Think, yes. Though. Yeah. So where do you think this came from in you? This sort of desire to want to make change and, and be a part of curriculum and sort of the greater foundation of education. Like, where do you think that came from? Because you you're beyond the classroom. You're not just, you know, that guy on the ground. You're.
1: I think there's a element of being recognized there that maybe I didn't have when I was younger. Uh, my parents were older. This sounds pathetic, and I don't mean to be, <laughs> be pathetic. But no, I mean, I was not, and I chose not to be. Maybe that was the, I chose not to be a, political person in high school. I did not. I ran for, I was upset in college that there were these two fraternity groups were holding every single office. So I just said, I'm going to run for class secretary, class secretary. And I needed 25 petition signatures. I got the 25. And the election came, and I had 23 votes. So I didn't even get the 20. And I can tell you, I was lamenting that to one of my good friends in college, and he looked at me, and said, Charlie, and he said, you know, Jack, when are you going to learn? You never should run in an election you're not willing to lose. And I can tell you, I can see we were exactly in my dorm room when he said that, and it was like the lights, and that has been my mind. I will never run for an election unless I'm willing to lose it. And that motivated me. And I liked, I was raised to do good. And such the stuff is doing good. I mean, I got a phone call, would you be willing, would you be willing to give up the academic senate seat to be associate vice chancellor? I mean, it was like, hello, oh, hi Bill, how are you? Nobody ever came to me. Then the next day I you know the chancellor's walking in my office. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. But you see, they saw me behave as senate chair. So they knew what they were getting. Not to have but they knew, you know, he can have a mouth.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. He can be effective. Yeah. Right, right. So who were some of your colleagues with whom you worked closely or came to know well in the humanities and in your department?
1: Well, it was Hazel Jones, who was our dean, who I had great respect for. And she went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which was a bastion of whiteness. And today, it's one of the least diverse campuses in the country. Uh, so that's not, uh, uh, So she and I saw her stand up to a, a, all male administrators ahead of her and above her. So Hazel Jones was one of them. Joan Greenwood was another one. She was a great mentor as a chair. Uh, Julian Foster in political science and Robert Fellman in history were political antagonists. <laughs> And just to watch them was an education in and of itself. Leland Balot's attention to detail uh, was...
0: His fight for justice. Yes.
1: Uh, That would be, uh, in an interesting way, Don Shields. Don Shields, President Shields, was our only homegrown president. And he was an excellent scholar. And he got lifted, right, from being uh, Senate chair. Mm-hmm. He was only Senate chair for a few weeks and then became the administrative vice president. So yeah, Bill Langsdorf, I, I've had the privilege of uh, working closely with seven of our eight presidents.
0: And tell me about that. Like, talk, tell me about who you re- remember or who sticks out to you.
1: Bill Langsdorf was a gentleman. A good personal friend of Chancellor Dumke. Uh he would go to the mat and then some for faculty and faculty responsibilities and privileges, protected faculty, protected faculty. Uh, Don Shields, a uh, great scholar, great publisher, uh, worked Washington a lot. Jewel Cobb. Jewel Cobb was featured in my son's sixth grade science book as one of six leading scientists for her research on cancer. So she was a woman. I was on many panels with her and just about every panel she said she got more rough treatment being a woman than being an African American. Uh, Milton Gordon, long-term, gentle in his own way. Uh, He uh, talked about interested in minorities, interested in international studies. I think that's going to be one of Milt's tags. Uh, Willie Hagen, uh, playwright, writer. So he knew what that meant and what that role was for the faculty, and faculty loved him. Uh, Millie Garcia, very busy, very uh, uh, enthusiastic. About diversity, and I think she focused attention on diversity and high impact practices. You yeah. know, so
0: any other colleagues that you want to mention
1: in chemistry it would be Andy Montana and also be Miles McCarthy because he was acting president. He and I worked closely on the nursing, and I just to see him work. And he ha- always had this saying, "I don't." An administrator, I'm paraphrasing, but an administrator you don't see is not an administrator who knows his campus. And he said his campus. And so he would walk around. And I can remember him saying to me, you know, this this so and so, whoever it was, uh, doesn't walk the halls. And that stood with me. Mm -hmm. Okay, you see what the kids are doing, you see they don't have lab space, or you see what the faculty are doing. You know, that stood with me, and that stood with me in the chancellor's office, and that stood me. And, it's, and I visit as a school board member, I'm out in the schools. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says to me, you know, that school is filthy, and I go there and I see it's immaculate, or I go there and I see it's filthy, so I think you have to get out there. And I think that's one thing that Miles really got into me, you got to get out there. It makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Carol Barnes and Barbara Stone. Those are two of my best friends on campus. Uh, Both tough. Both tough. No nonsense. Uh, Barbara's son, who's now a Superior Court judge. The first time I met him, when he was two, he spit in my face. (laughs) So I I love Stephen and Barbara. And her son, Barbara, you know, Bob, Robert is head of City of Hope. Uh He's head, head, head of City of Hope.
0: Yeah, we did... um our, her oral history. Did two you? months ago, yeah, for our Women Politics and Activism Project. Oh, good. And funny enough, she mentions you. In Did the, she? In the oral history, and I, I can't remember exactly, but it of course is a positive. But I, she does mention you. Oh, yes. good, and good. Yeah, so yeah. Cause we Because we asked the same question. Yeah. My colleagues you're close to.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah.
0: Those were two women that were doing things. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Carol Barnes impacted teacher education and Barbara, you know, uh, made this campus visible by going places and taking the message,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Okay, so what are some vivid memories of your time here at Cal State Fullerton?
1: Seeing a whole bunch of naked people come running up the back behind the (laughs) truest and I was teaching that, whatever that room is in the corner of that building, would I mean, that be north, whatever that corner would be of that building, and uh, right by where the veg- vegetable juice truck is now, I opened the door and all come, all these new people and then followed by a whole bunch of police, Or getting in the elevator and having the students, no matter what, punch every button. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why, why were they doing this?
0: What was there's this? protest.
1: there's a war going on and there's a riot going on and you're just sitting casually in the elevator, standing casually in the elevator. Going on to carry business as usual, so they were sort of self anointed, self appointed arbiters of the social change. Uh Uh, When I did IMC Jules retirement thing, and I dubbed her the Queen of Concrete. So just building the buildings and the dorms. That's I don't know if they've lived up to their potential because I've had no reason to follow it in terms of. One of the rationales was you have students in the dorms. They're very involved in the campus life. They stay around Sundays to go to the plays. They go to the basketball game Friday night. I don't know if that's the reality. Mm-hmm. That was the some of the rationales. Uh, so watching that, watch us become a residential campus, although it's very small percentage wise. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly one of the highlights of my uh, life here has been involved with the uh, following the Arboretum. When I was in the anthropology, we got a dig, an archaeological dig over in the anthropology so the students could dig, and we brought people to campus to dig. Uh, To me, the the arboretum is a major, you know, it's the highest form of accreditation an arboretum can get in the world. It's got now. So to me, watching that and, you know, thousands of people each year taking advantage of it, that's, and that started when we got, my wife was involved in the Faculty Wives Club that worked with Terry Jones and others getting that. Uh... The garages <laughs>
2: uh,
1: you know there was supposed to be a uh, how do they would be afraid they were going to put a low uh, subterranean garage behind the art building where now the performing arts center is, but the water was up too high. that was going to be one of our main new garages that didn 't work out uh, getting college park, getting the law school across the street. Um,
0: Was space always a challenge? Always
1: an issue? Yeah, that comes back from my, you know, as a department chair. From my very first days as a department chair, Mm -hmm. space, space, space. It was in the chancellor's office. That building started to sink, they got that building in Long Beach, and started to sink. The building was, you see a, one day you come in to be a crack, that way we were heading to the harbor. (laughs) Of course, we are going to meet the Queen Mary, but, so you know, where is the academic senate going? Right? And where was the Academic Senate? It was no accident that it was on that corner of McCarthy Hall through the doors to the vice president. That was no accident. So the vice president couldn't live without going past. <laughs> you know, the, so the space is huge. It's, yeah. it's huge. Uh, faculty, the development of the uh, committee, That really the focus on the committee with fiscal affairs, I chaired the Fiscal Affairs and Statewide Issues Committee, which was a precursor to the PRBC. We wrote the, uh, the calendar that we're on now. It was the Arab boycott of the oil was coming in, and colleges around the country were not coming back till late. We moved this calendar up so we would start and finish before Christmas, and then the, we wrote that in that committee. So. Uh, I don't. Know, I lost the question. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> it was. It was no. You're. It's. You're doing great. It was vivid memories uh, while teaching while oh, being here on Cal State Fullerton. While being here
1: in Cal State Fullerton. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, we got you know 40 plus years, so it's a lot. Yeah. A lot of vivid memories. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Certainly, the changing of the of the student body becoming increasingly diverse, reflecting California, in Orange County. Uh, that certainly has to be a big one. Seeing women in departments grow We they historically haven't been underrepresented. That has been a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the growth in international studies, and to Dr. Garcia's credit, she focused on all of those high-impact practices, and she focused on them in her five years here, to her credit. Uh, we have, what else would I say? We said we lost football. We couldn't sustain football. I moved money from academic affairs to athletics to help cover football at the request of the uh, vice president. Uh, that was said. We had students in the last few years of the program who played games around the country. They were called body bag games. We, I mean, we got paid to go there. Uh, that was not a highlight of the campus for me. I wish we could have sustained it in a positive way, because I think theoretically, especially with residential students, you could do, you could have done something with football, we didn't. Yeah. Uh, I think Title IX has been very good. A lot of faculty on campus would not credit Richard Nixon for it, but Title IX has been good for the campus, I think, overall. Uh, We've had some really good new administrators I mean, who have moved on, and I think that's a credit because they learned about the Fullerton way and how we do things, and you know, reasonable people can disagree reasonably, uh, so I think that's positive, so we've sort of trained, and that's not, a, it's not like a Dalmatian, but you, they've been exposed to things here that are how to develop a curriculum collaboratively, how to put students first collaboratively. I think that's all those are good memories Yeah, they stand out
0: and you mentioned the diversity both in culture and in gender was that uh in your program specifically as well did you notice that evolve over time in sociology
1: Oh, definitely in sociology definitely anthropology child development was female-centric engineering was male-centric mm-hmm. i mean nobody was on the side of the angels in those two programs <laughs> right i mean in terms yeah. of recruitment and student interest and Outreach. I don't, I'm not aware of a lot of efforts being made mm-hmm. to equalize that, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay, so we've touched on this um, in, in many ways, but how have you seen CSUF change from when you first started?
1: I think in some ways the campus was prettier. I think, don't think it's as pretty as it was. And, but I'm not a big fan of, I know I'm going to get flack on this from some of my green friends, but frankly, my dear. Uh, I have in my neighborhood, we have some very beautiful homes who have now all sand in their front yard with a few cactuses. Beautiful landscaping gone, all right? Interesting part is two of them had people step out of their car and fall down into this ecology-better environment. Mm-hmm. That's for a lawyer to deal with. Uh, I don't think the campus is as pretty, and I don't think it's as well-kept as it used to be. That's my opinion, but I'm really here. But when I look at, like, the corner sometimes it doesn't look as nice as I would want it to look, and I was very nervous. I went by it by before commencement, and it looked kind of weedy. And I'm thinking, okay, you're going to have thousands of people here. At least the ceremony was at night part of it. Then they're not going to see our weeds. But anyway, I think that is a little bit different. Uh, I think that there is a... Uh, the Diversity is great. It's very reflective of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worry about male, some of the male stuff that's going on. I and mean, We have a son. I worry about that. I don't know what it all means. As a family sociologist, I'm worried about the attendance rate and the graduation rate of men, and especially a male who's an undeclared major.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, that's, I worry about that, and I didn't worry about that before.
0: What do you think's contributing to that?
1: I'm not so sure they're being given access and being encouraged the way they once were. Uh, it would be easy to misinterpret this, so I don't want to be misinterpreted. When you think you're going to be head of a household, that's a very different set of expectations than if you don't have expectations. And again, I'm not making a sexist statement and saying those are the good days. I just think, okay, there's not going to be taken care of mentality for some men. Uh, She's going to make 50 grand a year more than I am. And, you know, I just... So what am I doing this for? I think some of the spoiled, some of the men are spoiled, right? And uh, some, a lot of the women are overworked. But for decades, this is long before you know we've had men, a lot of men, not honoring child support payments. They don't even know if the kid has food, let alone diapers. So why are we surprised now? But I, mean, I, I don't, and that's. That, that concerns me, if the, if, the, if the male thing is not approximating. I always look, what is the percentage of Hispanics in the community? Why are we not that? What is the percentage of men graduating in this community? Are we that? Why, how do we, I always let that's, and that's not siloing people, that's just saying okay. And that's what students, going back to their student, is going to miss in a textbook if his textbook is 10 years old. So uh, how else has the campus changed? We must be doing something right. What, do we have 70,000 applications for the fall? Something, I mean, some gross number. There's thousands of applications, way more than we can, I shouldn't say 70, but way more than we can accommodate. We're doing something right. We have more accredited programs. That's positive. Specialized accreditation is positive, I think, for the students Mm -hmm. Uh, to help them get jobs. I don't know. We have new sets of eyes. I think new sets of eyes are good. People coming from different places. Um, I hear rave reviews about the new president everywhere I go, so that's positive. How uh, do I don't think it's changed? I think it's fair to say that traditional disciplines have become much more political. Hmm. And when I hear, when I go to events and social events, I hear much more of a political overtone or undertone to the curriculum of the stuff they're talking about. So I wonder, this is the question, are we value free? as yes, once I thought we were, to let the students decide. It's a question, I don't know, it's my ignorance speaking, but it's something I never thought about that much before. You know yeah. uh, I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Definitely. What about for the future? What would you like to see for Cal State Fullerton and how would you like it to continue?
1: Not grow. The San Marco's an hour away. We are landlocked. I realize we're the largest campus with the smallest footprint. Mm-hmm. But that's our reality. We should have bought the Holiday Inn when we could have bought the Holiday Inn across the freeway. And you need you're going to do something to the campus to build another dormitory when you could have bought that Holiday Inn there. What is that? That's a dormitory with a restaurant. This place, yes. And we that was a. And I hold the chancellor's office responsible in a large extent for not getting hope. I was involved in those conversations, Mm -hmm. and we should have had hope, and there were some personal things that were going on with that that never should have happened. We should have had hope. This campus, if somebody says we got to increase our master plan by 10,000 students, they ought to lose their job, because in my opinion, in Long Beach or here, because we simply cannot have that and have the quality of life we aspire to. So talk about the future, I think, this master plan, and I'll be really upset. The academic senate doesn't grab a whole of that through the facility. They had a perfect entree, totally embedded in Title Five. It uh, was them to uh, go after that and protect what we have.
0: Yeah. Any other hopes for the future?
1: Well, that's. I, I. I want to see some efforts for male graduation. That's a parent of a grandparent of a son and a grandparent of two boys, I want to see that. Uh, I want to see that we become pretty again. I would like to ever since when I walk across campus, it's pretty, because I think that's inspirational. Uh, I would like to see that we uh, keep hiring faculty and that we have more tenure-track faculty who thereby are. I'm not cheapening anybody here, lecturers or anybody, but I want to see people build their careers here not being forced to build their career on a freeway running among places. So I would hope that the new administration really puts effort into tenure track searches and uh, hires and keeps them with incentive programs and uh, benefits for their research and their teaching effectiveness.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what, switching gears a little bit, sure. what made you retire? I mean, besides obvious, maybe
1: I took, uh <laughs> I took the FERP program uh-huh. because when you lose a father who's 61, 64, you lose a mother who's 61, you lose a brother who's 48, and you lose a brother who's 54 and I've now had cancer four times, but then I had only had it twice. <laughs> so uh, I'm thinking, my accountant said to me, Gary, bless his soul, he said now, how old was your mother when she died? How old was your brother when he died? How old was your father when he died? How old was your fa- brother? And I said, I gave him the dates, he said, blankety blank, you're retiring as soon as you can. <laughs> I would tell you, that got my attention, you know? But I think I retired too soon, looking back on it.
0: Really?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because, like, it really, you know, I would love to have a class of freshmen right now and talk about brides, Mm -hmm. you know, and then show how that's so biased, you know, and that kind of (laughs) thing. Uh, Yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, I do so much, you know, I'm in the community. I'm on the Fullerton Fullerton Friends Board, and I'm uh, I'm president of the Orange County Board of Education for the whole county. That ends in three weeks.
0: Your presidency ends in three weeks. But Mm -hmm. your ten your tenure on this. I have two more years, and I don't
1: know what I'm going to do then because I'll be 77 when that's over. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what I'll do then. And I the last these nonpartisan office that's an oxymoron now. Yeah, it's an absolute oxymoron, and nobody's on the side of the angels on that one. You can pick on the right wing or the left wing or the even either side moderate. And there's nothing non in the everyday life that's nonpartisan anymore. Mm
0: Locals should stay nonpartisan. Don't, you would don't, hope. Don't you think? I would
1: hope, so everybody feels included.
0: Yeah. Can I? Can I ask? I know we're getting off topic a little no, bit, but I, but I I did want to talk about the school board. Um, how have you seen that the, the nonpartisanship, or the partisanship, play a role in?
1: Been very the, active in the last four years, in particular. Uh, Jerry Brown loved charters. Okay. School boards don 't in general don 't like charters mm-hmm. because they 'll take students away and they 'll lose that ADA in orange county twenty four or twenty five of the districts in Orange county have declining enrollment twenty four or twenty five declining enrollment so along that 's a natural drift with population so mm-hmm. along comes a charter that's going to yank eight hundred kids out of a district, do the math with ADA however the daily rate's going to vary by district. Yeah. The, so charters cost districts enrollment. So school boards have been loathed for charters. So na- statewide uh, charter associations had a friend in Jerry Brown. They're not going to have a friend in Karen Newsom. All tell in fact he wants a moratorium on, which is our lawyer says is not legal right now. He's going to have to get legislation. So that became charters. are very Republican. Teachers unions, very Democrat, if you look where their money goes. not making a value. You just have to follow the money. Mm-hmm. And so charters have become political footballs. Therefore, school boards are political footballs. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty much an understatement, actually. So now we have, you know, my board now has gone from a 2-3 to, to a 3-2, very conservative board. And uh, so that's happening all over the state. And so, uh, city councils, same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's where the money goes, um, you know.
0: So, what got you interested in being on the Board of Education for Orange County?
1: Well, the first time I was I served nine years on the Fulton Elementary oh, Board. First, right. There was a, there was a, our neighborhood was part of the school redistricting plan. They were declining enrollment at that time, where well, they were going to close the school, and our school was targeted. And the people in the neighborhood asked me if I would run to be an advocate for our neighborhood. So I ran and won, and then I was there for nine years. Then uh, there I had an unsuccessful city council bid. For
0: Fullerton City Council. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And
1: then I was asked to run for city council, but that didn't work out, which that I never remember. Never run in an election unless you're willing to lose right, it. Right. And uh, that was fine. And uh, then I get a phone call one day from a high school school board member in Fullerton Jack, so and so has died. Would you be willing to go to take an appointment and stand for an appointment? You can When somebody dies or comes off the board, you can elect or appoint. And it also was contingent upon when it is. If it's like a week before an election, you're not going to anyway. So I said, what is it about? I didn't know anything about the county. And they explained it, and I prepped for it, and I got it. And so my first two times on the board, I was unopposed. So I was appointed, unopposed, unopposed. And then last time, they swung into action mm-hmm. as part of the partisan thing.
0: And when did you first start on the board? When did you first start? So it
1: would be 14 years ago. to this board. So that's why I'm saying in two years I have to decide what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I think we should assume I'm going to run. Mm -hmm. For a variety of reasons, we should assume that.
0: (laughs) And your district, District 4, covers Buena Park, La Habra, Fullerton, Placentia, and portions of Anaheim? Yes. What are some successes and challenges in serving this this vast
1: area they're very very different neighborhoods they are They're usually different neighborhoods I mean when you compare pieces of Anaheim that I have with La Habra and the hills (laughs) I mean you're doing night and day right Uh, so it's just being available to those people I communicate with the board members I'm on the uh, California School Board Association delegate assembly so I work with people there from those areas there are, you know, those boards are on there. So I work with those board members. I visit the schools. And uh, it's scary, the degree of difference that what some of our children are getting. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of my things. I just got back from Washington two weeks ago, and we successfully passed this week in response to that trip a resolution on my board to support making significant progress toward the unfunded mandate of special ed. The federal government said, you're going to do these things, special ed, and we're going to give you up to 40%. They're giving now about 15 or 16%. The highest we ever got was 18 under Obama's Recovery Act. So that difference is being eaten from your little boy's classroom mm-hmm. to cover this unfunded mandate. We, got, we have we signed on with our board endorsed two resolutions that I brought back to get up, up to the 40% or get rid of the mandate. So that kind of thing. So that's, that unites that because all the districts in the neighborhood that you mentioned, all are being hit by special aid costs, all are being hit by the drain on pensions. So or the, the, where that's going, I can't imagine where that's going. Uh, that's going to bankrupt some school districts and not to distant in the future in fact There could be three real fast in Orange County if as I understand that uh, I Don't know if they're mine. They haven't been told mm-hmm. but so going back to your question uh, There are commonalities that they have Okay school facilities we passed all these bond issues every and Governor Brown has not released bonds so there are there the county itself, you know where the Carl's headquarters is? Right on Harbor Boulevard, where Carl's Jr.'s headquarters is? You cross over the 91 then to go east on the 91. That's going to be a big county school, which will put together a lot of programs that we're spending thousands of dollars on rent all over the county. They're all going to come there. But he's not releasing the bonds. All districts are facing that. So, yes, it's true that Anaheim Hills looks different than, but I don't go out to Anaheim Hills, I'm more over this way, but they're the same district, right? Mm-hmm. Which just surprised me. I'm surprised Anaheim mm-hmm. Hills has not seceded, but that's another story.
0: I know, it's two different Anaheims. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has talked to the mayor of Anaheim. <laughs> it's, and the Tate. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But there are commonalities. You know, uh, they're all having to deal with this local control funding formula. They all have to do the LCAP, which says how they're doing and how they're funded. And one of the beauties of it, they're all now having to deal with, for the first of Jerry Brown's credit, uh, paying real attention to foster children, which we haven't had. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think our Guardian College Scholars experience, which I was involved with a bit. So, yeah, so there are commonalities, you know. Yeah. But it's interesting if you think about it. We have some really high-powered schools in North Orange County. We don't have charters up here the way they come out of South County, where they have excellent test scores in charters and uh, schools. Mm-hmm. So it's just you what know, it gets the culture of the area is, I think, also important.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree too. Yeah. So what, you've been on the school board for a while. Right. What, what motivates you in this work that you do for the board?
1: Uh, making a difference there. Uh, this resolution that we carry. If we if this passes on this legislation that we hopped on next week, I can come off the board and I've said I've my. I'm not big on traveling, frankly. I don't. You know, I've been in Washington D.C. when I, as soon as I get dressed, I'm dripping wet from the humidity. It's like being in New Orleans. You know, so that's not one of. But you know, walking the halls and meeting this. When Feinstein comes up to you and says hi, how you doing? Because you've been in her office several times. It doesn't mean by name, but, I mean, you should, you know. Uh, I think what motivates me is that I saw kids here. God, this sounds conceited, and I don't mean it to be, but I saw kids here who got screwed by the system, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and who, uh, if they had the opportunities that I had or they had some of the opportunities that I see, uh, this is the perfect example and I'm going to have to be anonymous on this piece and I'm not done with this but I was at an event a few t- days ago and they were extolling the virtues of their scholarships they, they give out I said oh they got money <laughs> and I'm thinking well I got a cu- couple thousand kids who maybe could really use scholarships and it's a thousand dollars a hit that's huge for, for some kid going to a community college or whatever and so I said, what are your criteria? And they said, well, we only give to the top of the top. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, they have to have a 3-5 and above. I get that. They have to be, like, editor of the newspaper, student body president. And, I mean, they went through this whole litany. And I'm thinking, those kids are going to go to Duke. Those kids are going to go to a Franklin and Marshall. My kids are not... So I said, I have this group of kids, and I, oh, would they be eligible? Oh, we're sorry, we only give to the best. I got so angry. My wife had to grab a hold of my hand and walk me. Out. I was, it's. I mean, that's what mo- you know. You see that? And I'm. I, I have jail schools another school where I'm now. You know, I got jail schools, and I'm thinking they made some dumbass choices. Some of these kids, and sometimes they made three or four dumbass choices. But I support a program where if you're 22, you're in the third grade reading level, you can come back and get a high school diploma if you work at it for two years. You know, the hell with you know that other bit. You know, now people, when I say, make that speech, people say, are you sure you're a Republican? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I say, you're dealing in a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's really what motivated, because I was so animated. Fact. First of all, the, that event, the food was very good, but the, there was not enough to drink alcohol. So I was really thirsty, and I and I have to watch my kidney situation. I gotta watch, I gotta pump this all the time, and I'm thinking, boy, I was really angry that you know we take they take the winners, and then they have a then they tell me we have such a success record with our kids, and I want to say, well, damn, you should damn be well better. Yeah.
0: The rich are getting
1: richer with what you're doing. All right. All
0: right. Well, I understand what you. A little heated mm-hmm. I understand
1: that's um, where a through G see that's why I'm so good. Wed- when I heard that 53 51 percent of California kids are only meeting a through G now we have the highest in the state maybe maybe Santa, we're t- running a race with Santa Clara County which you would expect with a through G when Ann Reynolds and I worked on A through G the chancellor oh my god and this research shows that if your son is going to be a plumber the more A through G he's had the better his salary is going to be. You may not complete all through A through G, so we should be pushing. Talk about achievement gap. I don't want to hear that argument. We had this for years ago. So well, mm-hmm. sorry, I get to that.
0: No, I, no it's great. It's great. Um, let's see, where are we? Um, so, so you've served as the board's president and vice president, right? Um, and your term is is goes till twenty twenty, and right. you, you know you may run, you'll probably run again, but um for the future what do you hope to see for
1: the orange county schools well there are there is um still the achievement gap is going on and we know that the more students get english language learning many of them do much better than a single language learner which would be an english kid typically english-speaking child so I would hope to see greater completion of the English language learner requirements. Uh, I would hope to see uh, getting more minority students into gifted and talented education. And we have a great relationship with the executive director of that program for the whole country, who is a former staff member to Senator Alexander. And we were very involved in re- reauthorizing No Child Left Behind, which became ESSA. We were a feed to that because of our contacts with him. So what I would hope to see is that we get special education on a more stable funding. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's a very litigious field. You know, districts do not allow their principals to go anywhere if there's going to be a lawyer without their own lawyer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and and again, I'm not bad-mouthing parents of special ed kids, but it is a huge problem for districts an opportunity as well, uh, so I would hope we would see that. I would hope we have a recognition of arts education at a level that we're pushing STEM. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not one of these who merges them, because I think that waters down both, uh, and I think if somebody's going to get lost in that paradigm, and it's going to be the arts. And I think if you keep them over here and really focus on them the way Fuller Elementary School does with whatever they call that. So I think that would be something I would like to see. Uh, The reality is when you have declining enrollment, the county, my board, we had 10,000 students that we had responsibility for. Severe, severe special ed, two aides, special ed tragic. If you visit those sites, there's one right over here. If you visit those sites, you'll never be the same. Uh, But you have Governor Brown. Remember, uh, prisoners are to go local. So we had the jail schools and all these other continuation schools for our kids who had been in legal trouble. They are out. I can't tell you where they are. I can't tell you if they moved to. I can't tell you if they got a degree from, a diploma. So we went from 10,000 ADA as a unit to 7,000, a little below 7,000 ADA now. That means we've had we've done early retirements, we're closing sites. So when you get in that retrenchment mentality as the 24, 25 of the districts, they're saying, okay, you know, uh, it, it, there's going to be some, some stuff going on there that could not be pretty hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, you know.
0: Were you you surprised throughout your years to see the involvement of education becoming so political, such a political issue, and maybe it shouldn't be?
1: Was I surprised? No. Was I disappointed? Yes. Nobody is on the side of the angels. I don't care what political party you are. All, somebody's got an axe to grind and somebody's got a cause to push or a candidate to push. The stakes are so high and there's so much money there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Uh, uh, disappointed would be a bit of worry. You know, I just attended a meeting last week where they were so surprised, so happy that they got control of a board, of a partisan group got control of a board. In some ways, they had control of it before, but they weren't willing to admit it because they, the other people on the board who reflected that power, that point of view, were not intolerant of other viewpoints. So we say so they had more support there than they actually were willing to admit because they did they were, the some PMs, the people went off the company line. So yeah, that's the city councils are going that way. From my friends in the city council, there's there's an, there's an ideological litmus test for anything anymore. And that's not cynicism. That's reality. A friend of mine ran for a school board race, and he met with the teachers' union. I mean, the teachers' union rep said to him something like, do you promise never to vote for a charter school again, ever? You have two votes we don't like. He said, no, I won't make you that promise. The charter school people said, do you promise to vote for every charter school that you will get before you? He said, no, I'm not going to make that promise. He did not get the charter's endorsement. He got the other people's endorsement, finally, but he had to do a lot of arm-twisting to get it. So, I mean, who's on the side of the angels in that argument? I think somebody, when they make that, I, had a, I told that story to a friend of mine who's a lawyer up north on the county, She said, you know, they're getting dangerously close to illegal activity with that one. If you keep it purely nonpartisan, you don't go there. You know, what's in the best interest of the kids? What can we afford you know, and this push now, which going back to with this, there's this big push, and you just need to watch out with your prince. Is this career and technical education push? Mm-hmm. I have had students here who told me, women, uh, Vietnamese, um, I was encouraged by counselors in my family, both, to go into nail art. I've had Cambodian students tell me, same sources, family and counselors, uh, Cambodian, you do donuts. In in Southern California, a huge percentage of our car washes, I understand, are owned by Armenians. I've had Armenian men tell me that they are getting in line to go to the car wash business. And, of course, I've had Latino male and African American male saying that some of them had to do whatever they could do to to be channeled in career technical fields. Of mechanics and that kind of stuff, car mechanics,
2: mm.
1: and that's 2018. I mean, that's something you heard 30 years ago, you right. know what I'm saying? So that worries me.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. are you going to drop career and technical education into your highest status communities in West LA <laughs> okay. when the certificate of good parenting is certif- the admission for the Stanford kid may be a druggie, but he's got the admission to Stanford, right? Oh boy. <laughs> Aren't you glad you have only one? <laughs> Wait, it's, he hasn't started to drive yet.
0: <laughs> God help me! Um, all right, so just a couple more questions. No problem. Have.
1: You have my. I'm totally whatever you need. Okay, good. I'm um, probably putting you to sleep here. No, Sorry. no,
0: no, no, no. Um, but I do wonder, since you, you were in Washington recently and, and you um, work on this um, outside of California to an extent, is California a microcosm or do you see the challenges here or throughout the nation? Are we unique?
1: You know, that's a great question. It's going to be hard not to be political <laughs> in that because when I meet with school board members from around the country, which I do a lot, they'll say, blankety-blank, what the hell is going on in California now? You're getting rid of straws? Blankety blank, what's going on in California now? You want to get rid of President's Day and make it May Day? Blankety blank, what's going on? I don't think people look to us right now in the same way they may have 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. That may just be. But school board members say that to me, and they get, you know, uh, we had uh, Terry Bradshaw, the football player, at our conference, and he was funny.
0: He's a funny
1: man. Yes, but he made some of the most, well, out here would be homophobic remarks mm-hmm. about, you know, in the huddle, etc. kind of like conversation. And the people from California were, oh my gosh, <laughs> did you hear what Terry Bratchett? You go over to, to speak to my friends in Wyoming or Texas or Arkansas, those people I know over in the school, they say, wasn't he the best conference speaker you ever heard? Yep. So your question's an excellent one. I don't know what to say to you right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know,
1: they admire the UC system and the CSU system. The, the UC system for the academic quality, the Nobel laureates, the Botols, the UCLA Medical Center, the UC San Diego Nobel winners kind of thing, they admire us for our access, access. So if we mess with access, you know,
0: yeah, what about? Uh, and I only
1: visit with uh, typically this time. Uh, many I should rephrase that. Many times I visit with legislators from other states who are in key committees. This time I was totally California and, and the gifted executive director, gifted association, because I think he's director of government affairs, rather. He uh, is very helpful. We want to do more gifted education because I see minority kids channeled out of gifted, and that parents don't advocate. The way many parents of gifted children know how to advocate. Mm-hmm. You and, see that
0: in Orange County, or you yes, see that statewide. Both. Mm-hmm. Why do you think? Why do you think that is?
1: I think a lot of times parents are not afraid of the school. I think a lot of times schools have not been friendly to parents. One of the things that we have to do now with the local control accountability plan is you have to man, mandate a performance of parents' involvement in that. You have to sign off on. We had X number of meetings, and Abby and her husband, you know, you know a bunch of names. Parents of a sixth grader attended this, you know, we have, and you, we target that. So hopefully that will, you know, but when I was in the board we had testing for gifted where we never tested any minorities, and we put a stop to that. They were minority kids weren't being tested. That was years ago, so that's changed now.
0: Yeah. So I I hope I don't put you on the spot in asking about your your political no. leanings because you do sound very liberal in certain aspects and, and, and yet you've mentioned, you know, your role in the Republican Party right. and the Republican Central Committee. Right. So so where do you stand on things?
1: Okay, I believe you have made choices in your life that A are none of my business and none of my responsibility, and I refuse to do cleanup duty for you. Macro. I believe that it's that I'm very conservative fiscally. I'm very accountable oriented fiscally. Much of everything else is none of my business. So that's in many ways is libertarian. I mean, the notion that these people are commenting about um, these border children and saying horrible things about these border children, well, what have they done for children similarly situated? See? And uh, so, yeah, no, so yeah, I am, uh, you're very wise and that that, that would be how I – and a lot of people say that to me. Why are you a Republican? And I said, I believe – I'm 20 pounds overweight. And I love potato chips and so when I don't know whether I'm hungry I'll have some potato chips if I'm sad I think maybe potato chips will help I own that Abby not Madison Avenue who sells potato chips not my grocery store who puts them right up front so Jack can grab them when I walk in Jack owns his potato chip problem
0: accountability
1: yes yes and I'm seeing more of that in schools and that's positive for me, and that's Jerry Brown, and he's you know that Jerry Brown did that. He held us to the fire. Now, if we just released that bond measure, so we could <laughs> build schools for the kids, we'd be yeah. You know.
0: So, what did this last election do for you? What what did your what was your takeaway on on election twenty
1: sixteen? Takeaway election sixteen. That's a great question. Uh, I think that. Hillary gave it to Trump in some ways by never going to Wisconsin. I think Comey helped. I really do believe that piece, Comey helped Trump. I think Trump appealed to some people who have been screwed over by the system in their minds, so therefore it's real for them. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't, but I mean, if you think you've been shafted, you're gonna act accordingly. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think in many ways it was predictable Plus, when you have 16 or 15 people running for the same slot, it's going to be easier than if he's just up against a Mitt Romney or a John Kasich. The Democrats watch to see if they have the same problem. They tried to get a lot of the Democrats out in South South Orange County so that they would have, you know, uh, make it difficult. So if they have, uh, you have many people running, it's going to be easier to get the nomination. So the Democrats may commit the same mistake that the Republicans committed with a plethora of candidates. Yeah. That could happen, you know.
0: Yeah. All right, so we're coming to the end of my questions. Um, so how have you stayed affiliated with Cal State Clinton since you retired?
1: How have I stayed affiliated? I've just been elected president of the emeriti association. That'll start this afternoon, um, next week. Uh, that's affiliation. Uh, attending some performances, visiting friends, but minimally. I know myself well enough. I could. I know. I can tell you, the faculty who smoke outside of that building, and all I would have to do this is New York Jack now, walk over there and I would unload on the three of them, that's not good. Not good for myself, <laughs> but I, yeah. So I, you know, that's, that's silly in a way, but I know that I did, not, I did not want to be the person who never knew enough to go away. So I've been out of here three years basically and I can count on two hands probably the number of times I've been on campus, Really,
0: mm-hmm.
1: deliberate choice.
0: And now how does the emeriti faculty feel about the current state of the university?
1: You know, I really don't know that much about that that I would feel comfortable giving a, a sweeping statement. They're very committed. They raise money for student scholarships. They you know, have nice programs. They just had a great one with Rafe Shine last two weeks ago, whenever it was. Yeah. So, I mean, they are... And well, it's good to see these faces, because I remember being on that committee with him in 1978. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got to get a life, but uh, anyway. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's been really uh, wonderful for me to get to talk to oh, I would imagine. you and hear, hear and record the history of this
1: university. But you know, one of the things that I've done is I've been in seven films as an unpaid extra.
0: Oh, really? I did not know
1: this. I've been in an unpaid extra, in the most, recent, the most well-known one, was The Battle of the Sexes with Steve Carell, uh-huh. the Billy Jean King story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was a fun movie. And to how did in. you get into this, and, and why? That's a great question. When I was a kid growing up, remember my, everybody's much older than I am, right. right? My parents would take me, or my brothers would take me to New York City, which was only a 25-minute train ride on the Long Island Railroad, and we would go to watch television tapings and live television. shows. what's my line? Whatever. All right? So my grandchildren are coming in from Utah. Now come out here decades later. My grandchildren are coming in from Utah. I got them to here. I think you know, I had such a good time going to television tapings and watching that. Maybe my grandkids would. So I get involved in all this, and there's a, there's, a, there's very, several sites, movie, t- TV ticket sites. So I get in there and I say, I got. And they ask who who do you, whom do you want to bring, and I say, you know, the kids. You know this was the, they were much younger, not that they're not old. And so I, they said, uh, well, sorry, they're much too young for these things. But you fit a profile. Would you be willing to be an unpaid extra? So yes, so I've done seven of them. Whitney Houston biopic, I'm one of the old white men in that. <laughs> no speaking.
0: Uh-huh. Proud scene. Uh-huh. Well, it's a good cultural experience, I would imagine. As
1: a sociologist, the <laughs> elitism, the stratification, I mean, it's object lessons of stratification.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, garbage food I wouldn't give to my dogs for the unpaid extras, better food. I mean, and then... You can't go near. You can't go near that celebrity. But you, get, that one's friendly, and I mean, it's the strat, I mean, it's fascinating sociology. Yeah.
0: yeah. you'll have to collect some research, maybe.
1: Maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <Something laughs> they
1: give you special nineteen, it. you know, nineteen eighties clothes of one of them was, mm-hmm. and you know, we yeah. did the Steve Carell thing at uh, the. We, that that was, it got a lot of buzz. They thought they were both going to get Oscar nominations for that, and they didn't. Yeah. But uh, we did that at the Dominguez Hills campus, which yeah. was nice. A lot, You know, the TMZ means the movie zone, and that's 30 miles, I think. So once they go out of that, they've got to really pay those people. So they film in, within 30 miles to basically Paramount Studios, or whatever. And so sometimes as you get called to go to a movie, they want you there at 4 for filming at 9, night it's a night like disney called for a carnival scene and uh the the, the, yeah it was they called they sent me the messages well there was a call for and uh they uh it wasn't going to be in santa clarita and that means i would have been driving back on the 101 at four o'clock in the morning well at 75 i'm sure sex is not going to do that (laughs) for free i'm not going to do it anyway but you know what i'm saying so um, and that's that's been an interesting thing that's been sort of like a I haven't done it for a couple of months now, so. That's an interesting
0: thing to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah,
1: really, and you know, and see some of the same people, so, and they, one of the interesting one was The Secret in Their Eyes. It's a remake of that Academy Award-winning foreign film, and we filmed that, at, uh, I mean, at uh, Dodger Stadium. And you know where the Hollywood sign is? They had helicopters based in the Hollywood sign, and they flew. You know, you've been to Dodger Stadium? Mm-hmm. Can imagine a a helicopter hovering over the pitcher's mound at the same level of the top tier of the stadium? That's how low it was. And they flew it in twice and said, you can look at this, watch it, get used to seeing this helicopter, but you're never to look at the helicopter again. And then they filmed us, and we were there hours, hours. And I'm blocking them. Nicole Kidman was in that movie, and... uh, Julia Robinson, I'm blocking the name of the actor who was in the movie, but yeah. Oh, wow. But that, I mean, it's, and then we, I never knew that stadium had so many stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, so did you get
1: everything you needed?
0: Well, I, did, I think we got a good chunk of it, um, but I have one more question, and it's it's the heavy question. Sure. And it could be more than one thing, but it's, what are you most proud of? both at your time with Cal State Fullerton, and then in your life.
1: In my life in general? Yeah.
0: So personal and professional.
1: Okay. Well, personally, it's my family. I mean, my kids are great. They're very, very different. You would never know their brother and sister in many ways. Mm-hmm. They don't look alike. Are they parent differently, which is nice, at times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so definitely my family, my wife, she's, got a, she's a great accomplished woman, she's very involved in the assistance league, Alpha alpha part of the assistance league and the Nixon Library. So she, she had a good career as a special ed principal, uh, Love my garden, we're, we're a national wildlife recognition garden, so that's nice. I'm short on birdhouses, I think, but I'm going to of something about that. Uh Professionally, oh gosh. Can I split that in two? Okay, I think professionally for the CSU, it was being acting associate vice chancellor, getting to work on A through G, leading that team and being involved in that team and working closely. I'm a New York City boy, and I worked on getting agriculture certified for the rural kids. Mm-hmm. Who would ever think that?
2: Yeah.
1: Right? I didn't even know, what, you know. I, I, we went to the farms and I said, What the hell is that? They said, Check that's a cow. <laughs> <laughs> Not, it was close to that. Sure. But so I think it would be that, in terms of having an impact on that. I must admit, here being the first with the smoking, what that means, and we have thousands and thousands of cigarette butts that were picked up by that that researcher, that great researcher, and I was, I'm forgetting his name now, but he was, did a great job. Yeah, I think that, you know, that was that.
0: uh, Why was A through G such an important issue for
1: you? Because the poor kids and the rural white kids were not becoming admissible because the school districts didn't provide them courses. When we did it, we thought, oh, my God, it's going to be the kid, the black kid in Oakland and Latino kid in East Los Angeles who's going to have the hardest time meeting these admission standards barely. It was the white rural kids and the minority kids who were in the Oregon the border and the, the eastern border of California, that whole rural area and even pieces of the valley. Central Valley, they could not meet the admission standards. Some high schools had no more than biology for science. They had no physical science. Some high schools didn't even go beyond that geometry. Yeah. Right? So when, so when we did this it was like holding the school administrations and the school boards to the fire and saying, are you going to have your kids not be admissible to you, to the CSU? Mm-hmm. So that's why that is so, and that's why it sort of aches me a little bit to see that we're not having higher, you know, I was hoping we'd get way, you know, my naivete, Ann and I were... We think, oh, but this is going to be easy, 80%, and, you know, we're going to, um, we do Summer Bridge, and blah, 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 blah. Well, to have Orange County at 53 or 54%, and it's the flagship county for education in the state, really.
0: Because in a way, it goes against the master plan and what the CSU was established for Mm -hmm. to help these local kids and give them a chance to go to college. well. yeah. All right. Anything else you would like to mention before we close? Any other memories or proud moments that you'd like to share? Well, I love graduation.
1: I love walking in the crowd in graduation, going down into the audience and visiting with the kids. Um, love meeting their parents. I get a sense of sadness at times of what they've not had, but what my own are having, you know, in Comparison no fault of their own. That's why I'm, you know, the DACA thing is so disturbing to me, regardless of who brought them in. The DACA thing is very disturbing to me, Mm. Uh, in terms of moral issues. Uh, I guess that's judgmental, but uh, I I think you've you've exhausted my, uh...
0: (laughs) Your mental capabilities. Yeah, really, right? Well, I really thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. For doing this and helping us preserve the history of the humanities in Cal State Fullerton. Thank you for coming here today and letting me pick your brain for so long.
1: Oh, no. Whatever. Whatever you need.
0: All right. Well, with that, this will close the interview with Dr. Jack Bedell. Thank you again.
2: Okay.